sending you back to the future. What are you? I'm Batman. Bueller? Bueller? Game over, man. It's game over. Slider. You stink. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Real Talk, a movie podcast. We are your go-to source for ratings and recommendations of past and present films. I am your host, Wes Jones, podcasting from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Hey, this is Tommy, podcasting straight from Nashville, Tennessee. The Movie Buddy Conway, podcasting from Bowling Green, Kentucky. What's up, Real Talk community? Thank you for hitting the download button on this episode of the show. We've got a fun one lined up for you tonight. This is the second of three episodes we're dedicating to 80s summer blockbusters. And not only are you going to get each host top five picks for best summer blockbuster from 1985 to 1989, behind the scenes, we've been collecting your top five lists as well for the entire 80s decade. And at the end of the episode, we're going to crown one movie, King of the 80s Summer Blockbusters. And just as a reminder, last year at the same time, we did 90s Summer Blockbusters. And if you haven't yet, go back and listen to those episodes, which were episodes four, five, and six. And spoiler warning, Jurassic Park eventually was crowned the king of the 90s Summer Blockbusters. But that doesn't take away from, from the episodes. Okay, so what 80s movie is going to be crowned king tonight? At this point in time, none of us know what it's going to be. I think we all have an idea of what it could be, but depending on how the lists go tonight, that's going to determine things. Whatever winds up being crowned king of the 80s summer blockbusters is going to get its own episode, and we're going to record that next. So let me bring my co-hosts in here, and Gabe... Are you ready for tonight? Any bold predictions on what's going to finish number one? Yeah, guys, I've been so pumped up. This has been such a fun decade to do. A lot of fun. You know, this five-year period, Wes, it took me back to a, a time when me and Tommy were at dance camp together. My, I went by Baby. He went by Patrick Swayze. And I ran to him. And he did the per, executed the perfect lift right in front of a whole community at our dance camp. And we were applauded. And, you know, we practiced that move for a while, so I was real proud of us. So, you know, this is taking me back. I'm, I'm ready. Prediction, dirty dancing all the way. I'm not afraid of my feminine side. Now, did you call him Patrick Swayze just now because you don't know the character's name? You called the baby, baby his character, and then you just said Patrick Swayze. That's correct, Wes. <laughs> <laughs> well, teammate, get in here. And I know you've been at home in your lab. You're trying to mix up the perfect top five list. Do you have a favorite that you think is going to win the contest? Man, this has been tough. Yeah, glad to be on the show tonight, guys. Excited for for this list. 
Yeah, this has been one of the toughest lists I've ever put together, I think. I mean, this late 80s era like literally defines the summer blockbuster in a lot of ways. Gabe is right. We did have that magical summer camp experience. Um, <laughs> no, Gabe, you just call me Patrick Swayze now. Ever since Roadhouse, you just said I'm a lot like his character in that. I'm a cooler in a lot of ways. I do that on the weekends. I don't know if the Real Talk family knows that, but I am a cooler on the weekends at a couple <laughs> bars around here in uh, Smyrna, Tennessee, actually. I go down to Smyrna, Tennessee and do some cooler you know at the bar so just want to let everybody know that if they're in smyrna tennessee come and see me down there so yeah i'm excited to to get rolling well audience we brought along some special guests tonight to help with this countdown and these guys honestly they've been great partners of ours they promote our show they interact with us on social media we've been on their show twice so far we're just really happy that they're making their first appearance on real talk Please welcome the hosts of Nerd Cage Live, Mr. Mark Withers and Mr. Jason St. Germain, who I like to call St. J. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. How's things going tonight? Going great, man. Thanks so much for having us, man. We've been waiting a very long time to guest on your show. Every time we get together, we have a great time. So I'm really looking forward to it. Yes, Mark and Jay walking the walk right here on Real Talk. That's what's <laughs> up. Excited to be here. I'm glad you I'm glad you came up with a catchphrase and I'm glad we could deliver 10 10 months later like we always do here real time. <laughs> Not for nothing but this is like the first time ever that Jay and I have actually guested on a podcast together. Usually we do these things separate. He does them a lot more than I do. He's more the Biden conquer. <laughs> yeah, he's more the Stan Lee, I'm more the Jack Kirby and I'm and I realize now as I'm saying that that a lot of people are not, probably not going to know what I'm talking about. There. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to start out by just telling our audience that, I mean, we, we've had a lot of great guests on our show uh, who have a lot of get, uh, great podcast. I mean, we only promote the ones we love, but Nerd Cage Live is so different than any of the other shows that we interact with, including our own. You know, you guys do a YouTube live show on Thursday nights, and St. Jay over here really puts a lot of work into the presentation of the show, what the audience is seeing on the screen. We we joined you guys for an episode a couple months back on Best Revenge Films, which was a lot of fun. Just last week, we joined you for your one-year anniversary show where we did a, a watch party for Pulp Fiction. So all of these have been new experience for us. So I just want to tell our audience, go check them out on YouTube. Head over there. Watch the episodes we've been on. Watch their other episodes. You're going to be in for a great time. But let me shut up real quick. Tell our audience just, just about the show. What can they expect from it? Where can they watch? Where can they listen to it? All those good things. You want to take this, Jay? No, Mark, go ahead. You are you are the founder. I'm the co-founder. So go ahead. Well, we, we founded it together. But, yeah. you know, that being, that being said, so our show essentially is about movies. Now, I know that uh, there's a lot of channels out there that – do a lot of critiques and they they make a lot of um they make a lot of of nitpicking uh what's wrong with a movie we like to take what's great about a movie and sort of expound upon it we we essentially do a lot of movie lookbacks um maybe 20 30 40 year anniversaries just recently we just did a, a raiders of the lost ark episode and we talked about what was fantastic about that movie um it's a lot of that and in addition to that jay does a lot of uh, game retrospectives like video game stuff. I do a lot of comic book stuff. Essentially, 
if it was cool to you when you were 13, 14, 15 years old, we're probably still talking about that now. And uh, that's sort of the that's sort of the meat and potatoes of the show. In addition to the live show that you mentioned, Wes, we also have like a recorded podcast that that uh, is on all of your favorite uh, audio streaming platforms: Spotify, Apple Podcast, um, Pandora, just about everywhere. And so. Uh, yeah, that's that's us in a nutshell. The last thing I want to do real quick, and, and Jay, maybe you take this one. Give us just a, a really quick just origin story of how the podcast came together, because I don't think that I've heard this. I'll try to keep this one short. So Mark and I, so I worked at a radio station in, in Syracuse years back. It was over a decade ago. Mark was on tour managing a band, and that's how we you know came in contact. And then along the way, stuff happens. We Lost contact, but then I was in Chicago and caught up with some, you know, mutual friends of ours, and Mark and I reconnected, and then we're just bantering back and forth on Facebook about Batman movies and comics, this, this, and that. And I private, and this was just before the pandemic started, just before it. I, I privately messaged Mark. I'm like, Mark, I like, I think I was like, we should start a channel together, you know, see what, see, and just see what's up. So then, you know, we bought our you know, all of our equipment. And then we started doing these practice, you know, we start practicing our craft, do these practice shows just for the hell of it. Cause we didn't want to go into YouTube, not practicing. Not knowing what we were doing. Yeah. And then eventually as we got better, Mark just took the audio and says, you know what, let's just throw these on YouTube. Let's throw it on Podbean and see what happens. And then eventually Mark wanted to do a podcast. I want to do a live streaming show because I've been inspired by some of my other YouTube friends who stream live on a regular basis. So we came to a compromise, like we'll do both. We'll, we'll stream one night a week and we'll do the recorded show as well. And Mark ended up liking the streaming more than he thought he would. So that's why we do both and it's a happy medium and it seems to be working. It's been a slow growth, but it's working. Well, again, audience, I just want to tell you, go check out the show. It's just, again, so different. I'm so used to the audio podcast world and the friends of our show do that same thing. And then the flip over to you guys and it's so visual. Uh, it's just it's just really cool, really cool experience. And I think you're both extremely knowledgeable and do a great job. So, again, great to have you both with us tonight. I look forward to your picks. Thank you for helping us decide what's going to be the best 80 summer blockbuster. And audience, if you're new to how we do this, to determine the overall best 80 summer blockbuster, we're going to use a generic point system. I've actually already been tallying up everybody's points. One through five, each host number five movie is going to get one point. Then their number four movie will get two points and so forth. And we've applied the same scoring to all of your lists that you've submitted. And that's how we're going to determine the top film. Let's kick off tonight with just a brief discussion on the late 80s. This was a very interesting time in the movie world tell us a little bit about what you know of the state of cinema during this time anything you can remember uh during this particular period so all right so we're talking about uh 1985 to 1989 and this uh i don't know how much your listeners know well they probably don't know anything about me but um these were my formative years so 14 to 18 for me so this is really my wheelhouse 
Most of the movies that we are probably going to talk about tonight, I've actually seen in the theater on their first run. Um, this is where I fell in love with movies. And in fact, my first part-time job was at a movie theater, not because I needed the extra money, but because I wanted access to movies before anybody else would, would, uh, was going to get the chance to see them. And so, yeah, like a very different time than now because you really didn't have, you know, obviously you didn't have the option of streaming. The theatrical window was a little bit longer than it is now. You know, like uh, when a film uh, had a theatrical run, there was a, like a much longer buffer before it actually went to home video. And so that that aspect alone made the idea of going out and seeing these movies in a theater that much more attractive and that much more exciting. No, that's a really good point. And I remember that too. I mean, you would see a movie in theaters and then, you know, once the home video and the VHS market really took off a little bit, when they weren't $100 for for a VHS, right. <laughs> they started getting more affordable around the $20 range. I mean, it would be eight, nine months, sometimes a year before you would see that thing come out on, on video. T-Man, what do you got for this for this time period? Yeah, that was a really good uh, explanation there, Mark, because I was a little too young for to see these movies in theater, really. I don't know if I saw really any of them in the theater. But I, looking at, so going back to kind of what we talked about in the early 80s, about kind of how that movies changed in the early 80s and kind of morphed into blockbuster cinema as we know it, I think what what you're seeing in this 85 to 89 range is this that on like steroids. Basically, right. I think Hollywood figured out what was working. So you got the Raiders, you've got the Ghostbusters, you've got the Star Wars, and it just amplified it. And it just kind of, in a lot of ways, sequelized it. So what you see, I think, in 85 through 89 is a lot of a lot of sequels uh, and a lot of high concept action, science fiction, all comedies, all those types. In a lot of ways, it kind of set the stage for what Hollywood became for good and bad. So I just want to run through another year. I know Gabe hates when I run through oh uh, my your, gosh, your top 10 this? list. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, this is going to be real quick. Look at the year of 1989, the top 10 films, and you can see it's sequels, it's comic book movies, it's high concept. So you've got Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. You've got Batman, Back to the Future Part 2 sequel. Look Who's Talking. you got Babies Talking. Dead Poet Society, that's kind of the outlier. Lethal Weapon 2. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Ghostbusters 2, Little Mermaid, and then Born on the Fourth of July, another outlier. So really, 8 of the 10 is kind of what I'm talking about here. And that, if you look at that top 10 list, it wouldn't be that different looking at a top 10 list from this year. A lot of sequels, comic book movies, kids movies, etc. So I think what you're seeing in the late 80s just became what we know now in Hollywood. It's like you described the 70s, Tommy, and you did a great job. And then you described the early 80s, and it was just like movies got more fun. And then they were like, oh, look, in the early 80s, people like having fun at the movies. Then they got even more fun. They were like, you know, Ghostbusters, Raiders, you know, these movies took off. And then it's like, we can put more of that in. Then you start getting back to the future and stuff like that. And then it just kind of stays there. You know, it's something for everybody. It's almost like the slow development of the four-quadrant blockbuster, in my opinion. One of the things that I found really interesting about this five-year period of movies that we're, we're going to be talking about tonight was the year 1985. Because, again, we had the early 80s ramped up, 
84 was a really big year for movies. Then in 1985, to this point in time, saw a record number of theatrical releases. But ticket sales were actually down in 1985 over 1984 by 17%. And that's a pretty good chunk. That's nearly one in five. So many coming-of-age films were being you know, released targeting younger audience at this time. And I think you started to see an oversaturation of the youth market. Plus, the introduction of fantasy films failed at the box office. The movies that, that came out that year in the fantasy realm were terrible. Audiences still wanted, still in that Star Wars high. They, and Close Encounters, and Alien. And so they continued to thirst for sci-fi films, which allowed big releases like Cocoon and Back to the Future. Those movies really succeeded while everything else kind of fell by the side. And then you also started to see those Reaganism-type movies that T-Man brought up the last time, those Americana films like Rambo and Rocky, those really pro-American films, they, they did well. But outside of that, a lot of the other big releases didn't do so well. And then it, that started to change towards 86 through 89 as I think Hollywood churned out more of those sci-fi films and, and things like that, that audience. Well, out. I think, Wes, that's a good point. I think Hollywood figured out how to make these films. I think by the mid eighties, they were still trying to figure it out. A lot of these are really high concept. And if you don't get that concept, right, it's not going to work. It's like high risk, high reward. But I think by the late eighties, they kind of figured out exactly how to do that. And it was like, kind of like going all, everything was working really well in that way. St. Jay, anything to add? Yeah. I'm just, just based on research and based from stuff I heard from my parents and everything, like the late eighties, that was, and Mark, please back me up on this because you lived it. It was like the feel-good era. Like, all music, rock and pop was more upbeat. Uh, the economy was at its, probably the peak, you know, probably, you know, bo- you know there was an ap- economic boom in the 80s. So more people were going to shopping malls, more people were going to the movies. And speaking of movies, the late 80s, a lot of these movies, whether it was sci-fi, comedy, or whatever, they were feel-good movies. So to me, 1985 to 1989 was the feel-good era. I I think that's a good point, and that's completely different than what we saw throughout the entire 70s. It's like not any difference. Well, like, yeah, all these blockbusters, like you're saying, Jay, they all the good guy wins. You know, there's not a lot lot of gray areas. Cut and dry. Who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? It's pretty obvious. Yeah, that's a great point. The only thing I was shocked about is when you said 85 did so bad. Three of, like, a lot of my favorite movies came out in 85. I noticed that. I was like, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of sad, though. Well, there were huge, those those top-tier movies were huge. A lot of people went to go see them, but I think there was just an oversaturation of the market, and people got a little bit of, of, of burnout because Hollywood didn't wasn't giving people what they were craving coming off, like I said, of Close Encounter, Star Wars, Aliens, uh, well, also, Indiana right. Jones, all that. When you've got two of the top three movies being Sly Stallone movies, it's going to be a garbage year. That's just a fact. <laughs> Yo! I mean, I'm that so is just a fact. It, there's that. a lot of people that realize that. They said, we don't want to see these Sly Stallone movies. These They suck. He sucks. Oh, and I think my Hollywood, God. Oh, my God. They man. finally you, realized you, 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 You're that. crushing my soul right now. 
I love this. I like that you're on the show because I'm with you, Jay. Don't worry. We'll fight him together. But what, what I'm saying is Back to the Future came out that year. Goonies came out that year. Man, how is the yeah. ticket sales down? I believe you, Wes. I know that you're not telling us fibs here, but it's just it's shocking. Just speaking anecdotally about 1985, I think that what might have been a major contributor to those uh, lower ticket sales was that that year and the year after that, um, those two years in particular were when most Americans started getting cable for the first time. And so oh. before that, you, you know, your Friday night or your Saturday night was a movie night. But if you, you know, suddenly had HBO and Cinemax and Showtime and they were showing these first run movies maybe six months or nine months later, um, a lot of people opted to just stay, you know, just sort of wait it out. And they were sort of amazed just having the option just to watch these movies at home. And so I think that that really uh, contributed to uh, that dip in the market, at least uh, temporarily. And Nintendo. Atari was like, almost killed the video game industry with like game and they were doing stuff like the et video game and everything else all these crap movie video games came to atari then nintendo comes out in 1985 1986 that may that may play a teeny bit of a role because nintendo saved the video game industry and that's when video gaming was awesome again that's a good point i didn't even i didn't think anything about uh, video games and again a lot of the movies were targeted to the youth so Family's getting cable. The family's getting Nintendos. There's just more things to do at home rather than going out to the multiplex. Right. I'm ready to dig in. I don't know about you guys, but I, uh, I, I've, I've been chomping at the bit with my list. So yeah, playtime's <laughs> over. That was just the appetizer. <laughs> well, then let's do it. Let's let's get the countdowns going. And audience, again, these are each host top five summer blockbusters of the late '80s. Again, that's '85 to '89. We pick from a pool of films released from May 1st through September 30th. And since we're using the term blockbuster, not just movie, blockbuster, we targeted movies that in the late 80s made around $50 million or so at the box office. You know, they were successful, which again translate today to around $100 plus million. So let's go round table from here. And to get the party started, let's go with Mark. Mark, what's your number five movie? If it bleeds, we can kill it. Predator. Yes, yes. And without a doubt, um, (laughs) to me, this was the movie of 1987. At the time when I saw it, I was super excited about it. Um, On an $18 million budget, it earned about $98.3 million. Uh, You know, so, you know, this was really uh, Arnie's time to really shine. This was like really at the height of his action movie star career and i and to me this is where he really started to own it you know and subsequent you know in in previous movies like conan the barbarian uh commando some of the other stuff that he was in you know he really even though he's a, a larger than life personality anyway you could really tell on screen that he really didn't like kind of own that that star power a hundred percent but by the time we get to predator you know, the first time we see him, he's walking, he's swaggering in, he's got the cigar in his mouth, you know, like he's he's really feeling himself as a star and projecting that in the character of Dutch. You know, in, in addition to that, you know, you've got a great cast in Carl Weathers, Jesse Ventura, Shane Black, 
Um, you know, there's there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of big names in this for you know big '80s names in this for the time. And I just recently like thought of this on my own. This is a brand new fan theory that I'm premiering here on your show. I wholeheartedly believe that uh, the character of Dylan, played by Carl Weathers, and his character in The Mandalorian are one and the same. Same character. The reason I think that is because Dylan calls in Dutch's team to, you know, to complete this mission. Same character in the same universe? Same character, same universe. Here's what I'm saying right here, right now. The Predator universe and the Star Wars universe are one and the same. Uh, Carl Weathers' character is the bridge between those two film franchises. The reason why I say that is because in Predator, um, Dylan calls in... Arnold's team to, uh, you know, basically giving them a false uh, premise for why they need to actually go in to complete this mission. He calls him in because he says that he needs the best. He actually brings in Mando in The Mandalorian. He actually brings that character in on a mission and does not tell him 100% what the mission is. Exact same MO, exact same uh, line of persuasion, uh, same swagger, everything. And I just wholeheartedly believe that like, uh, like this, is a, this is a sort of immortal character that sort of escaped the Star Wars universe, came to Earth, lear- changed his name, and just basically uh, learned all of our customs, but kept his line of work because that's what he's best at. Wow. Brain just exploded. For all you Mandalorian <laughs> fans, he's the one who hires the Mandalorian. It's, he's the guy at the table in there. I, I'm going to be here's about the thing. that for weeks. Doesn't doesn't he get his arm blown off in Predator? He gets like shot shot through the chest. Yeah, but hey, Star didn't, Wars it, give you bionic arms. That's the I mean, they've already done that before in multiple Star Wars. Luke got his hand chopped off. Boom, new hand. This is what I'm saying. He's got the technology to just go ahead and replace his arm. So, True. Mark, I feel like that was a pitch to Disney. They own hey, both man. now. <laughs> no, they own I'm, both. I'm no, no, leave Disney leave Predator alone. No, they're already <laughs> rebooting it. That's a, that, it's coming. Wait, 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 wait. But listen, you, you are aware of the lawsuit, right? The creator of Predator is suing Disney to get the rights back because there is some kind of loophole that after a certain amount of time, 35 years, that the rights go back to the original writer. And guess what? They don't want Disney to have any part of it, and they may win. And I'm rooting hard for these guys because I right. want to see Disney lose and crumble. And I don't oh, want no, them. No. I mean, yeah, oh, Predator's already been, that's been just, ruined, that's but I, I have no faith in Disney making any good thing with Predator. That being said, Mark, to add to a few things, listen, this movie gave us the greatest handshake of all time. Dylan, you son of <laughs> you a bitch. son of a bitch. Yes. <laughs> Best handshake ever. On top of that, if you really pay attention, I feel like this is the first Expendables movie. Like, this was the all-star action. Minus Stallone, this was an all-star cast between Shane Black, Jesse Ventura, Car- Carl Weathers. This was an elite group of action stars in the same movie. Um, fun fact, Jean-Claude Van Damme was supposed to be the Predator, yes. but he turned it down. Well, he didn't no. like the suit. Yeah, that's what it was. They actually did camera tests for for him in the suit. And and part of the reason why they went with a different actor is because Van Damme is uh, quite short 
when compared to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yep. And when he was in yeah. the suit, number one, he couldn't move around, so he couldn't do a lot of martial arts in it. And the second reason is because compared to Arnold, he wasn't imposing enough. And so yeah. they, 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 there was a mutual decision. Both Van Damme didn't, want, didn't really want to be in the suit, and they also felt like they really needed a taller, um, you know, much more uh, imposing figure to actually play the Predator. Yep. And Harry Mark, and the Hendersons. Mark, check my sources on this. I feel like you know this stuff, but check my sources. Another reason why they fired Jean-Claude, he kept wanting to do those uh, splits as Predator. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, yeah. listen, that's not going to work as the Predator. He's like, no, that's my uh, trademark. Uh, <laughs> um, and then they went to the other thing I've read, and Mark, check if I'm right on this. I'm pretty sure I am, though. That then they went to Sly Stallone. And they said, you can't even speak. You sound like gibberish. Uh, you're fired. <laughs> uh, just check. I think that's right, Mark. Just check me. Uh, that sounds right to me, man. Yeah, I thought so. Okay, cool. And the camaraderie in this movie. Like, what's amazing is when they filmed this movie, all those guys, they stay at the same hotel. They woke up early. They all went to the gym together every morning to work out. And they also competed with one another when it came to the workout regime and whatnot. And apparently... Uh, Carl Weathers was kind of like the one who didn't want to work out with everybody for whatever reason, but Arnold pushed everybody else. Not to mention the the fascinating thing about the, when they filmed this movie is like the the pain and suffering that everybody went through filming in that god awful 115 degree jungle. And if you look, if you really pay attention, there there are some scenes in the movie where Arnold looks skinnier than he does in other scenes. Same with the other rest of the cast because of the, all the uh, dehydration. And, you know, there were, there were, like, mornings where they couldn't even get a workout in. But the amount of blood that was spilled to make this movie makes you appreciate it even more. And, again, Predator is such a fascinating character. And it's just so tragic that we never got a great sequel. I don't care. I hate Predator 2. Um, Predators was okay. I and that. I don't even speak of The Predator. That was god-awful. I want, I'm still trying to erase that from my mind. And Alien vs. Predator movies were less, such a lot of time. But the character, Predator, is such a phenomenon in comics and video games and everything else. And I just love everything about... The first movie is untouchable. It's also on my list. Uh, Mark, I'm so happy you brought this up. So, yeah, I mean, I, I that's basically all my two cents on the film. Well, Mark, I think that's a great pick, and we already got a preview of St. Jay's pick there. So let's go ahead and move along. We're going to go to Gabe. Gabe, what's your number five pick? All right, guys. I've got a quick caveat before I go into my list, and I've never done one of these, but I've got to tell you guys, I did my list, and then I decided one of my movies didn't qualify. That does qualify, so I'm going to tell you which movie I kicked out. Dead Poet Society would be my real number four. It's been kicked out of my list because I decided... Even though it qualifies, I don't think of it as a blockbuster. No, this isn't a hit on Wes for what he did last week with The Shining. It's just like, I was like, I just don't think it, it fits. So, going to my movie. Guess what, guys? I decided to write my own movie synopsis for the movies this, this time just to make them a little more exciting. So, my number five, Rocky IV. Premise oh, for the yeah. story. All right, Rocky, fresh off two wins. He's just become... You know, a multi-multi-millionaire. He's, he's got robots. He's got fun. He's got an Uncle Polly that's going to help him through it all. Him and Apollo Creed have a face-off in a basement that you never find out who won the match. Then there's a setup. There's a new opponent. He's a Russian fighter. A, an Ivan Drago. 
it's also who people said I used to look like as a kid. You know, I was a young, fit Ivan Drago. Wes has told me that multiple times. So <laughs> there's this big batch. It's Russia. It's versus U.S. First, Ivan Drago comes and fights um, Apollo Creed. Oh, it's still, I'd never seen anything like the Apollo Creed death in there. It was, it was, it was tough. But this movie's got everything. It's about a comeback. It's about late you know, a late career boxer fighting the an immovable object, and it's just incredible. This movie's come on to every time when I was a kid, and this is probably the truth. In picking this movie, this is probably the one I've seen the most out of all this decade because every time it was on TNT, I'd watch it because the Russian Rocky fight is amazing. I want to watch it every single time it's on TV. It's just such a great fight. Um, Sly Stallone is T-Man's favorite actor of all time. You guys might not know that little fact. Fact number two, T-Man says this is the best robot in any movie in movie history. Right, Tommy? I agree. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't I just, first off, I didn't say any of those things, Gabe. Well, I'll tell you the scenes that I really liked. And as a kid, so you got to think about, about when I was watching this movie, like 10, when Ivan Drago's hitting it for 1,850 pounds of pressure, and you know the biggest heavyweight fighter only hits for 700 pounds, you're like, what are people going to do here? You know, that Apollo Creed entrance. They don't have entrances like that anymore. It's fantastic. <laughs> Rocky Is Rocky IV a Christmas movie? I don't know if we'll ever find out. But this movie did something no other movie's done before. The triple montage. And it has back-to-back -back montages with one scene in the middle of it. These montages kick the literal crap out of all other montages you're ever going to watch. If I can change... Then you can change, then T Man can change. I love this movie. <laughs> yes, sir. And that soundtrack. Yes. Listen, I have to add to that because, again, spoiler alert, I kind of have this one on my list too. Listen, I, I did my homework and I listened to your guys' previous episode. Tommy brought up a wonderful point about the 80s that this was the Reagan era. Okay, this is the Reagan. Now, whether you like to like him as a president or not, Reagan was probably at the time the most American president ever. If there was any one that needed to step up and be the true American leader, it was Reagan. And on top of that, Reagan was also a Hollywood movie star himself, and he always put Hollywood movies and action movies and Stallone on a pedestal. And Stallone was on to something when during this time. Okay, we. We're in the middle of the Cold War. We need to make the most American movie as possible. Also, another thing, fun fact about Reagan, when he was in office, every Thursday night was movie night in the White House. So it wasn't just, oh, yeah, I'm going to go around a movie. No, the president had access. He had literally had his own movie theater in the White House, and they played brand new movies. And one of those movies happened to be Rocky IV, and Reagan went on and off about this movie and publicly. And so people by the masses went to go support this movie because if you weren't supporting Rocky four, you weren't supporting America basically. <laughs> and what better like Rocky, the all American going against the enemy, the Soviet, Soviet union, union and yeah. Drago, the ultimate cartoon character, basically like he's a mammoth of a man. And let me just say too, the one scene that nobody talks about. I love so much is the scene where Rocky and and Apollo are sitting there watching film of their of their first fight. And then then like 
Apollo says, listen, man, you, we can't just, you know, flip the switch and just become regular people. I'm a fighter. I'm always going to be a fighter no matter what. And he says, yo, it's us against them. You know, like, I, I that us against them speech, ugh, I love it. <laughs> this may be one of my least favorite Rocky movies, but I know the impact it has on pop culture. And it ended the Cold War. On top of that, this movie is getting a director's cut this coming November, November 21st, or yes. November, yeah, November right. 21st, 2021, is the Rocky Four director's cut. I will be there opening night. I assure you, I cannot wait. So, just to show you how impact this movie is to this day, it's still making an impact, and we're going to be seeing it, we're all going to be seeing it again in theaters. Not for nothing, too. Like, you know, without Rocky Four, we wouldn't have Creed, which is one of my all-time favorite boxing movies. Uh, as you can tell, Jay and I are huge fans of the Rocky franchise in general. And while Rocky Four is not my favorite of the bunch, I still have massive respect for it. And to answer your question, Gabe, about it being a Christmas film, I don't think it's a Christmas film. I think the general rule is that all Rocky movies are Thanksgiving movies. And uh, and and that's how I treat them. I think that that's, that's how we should all celebrate Thanksgiving by watching the Rocky movies. I, there's not there's a lot I could say about this movie, <laughs> but out of respect for our friends Jay and Mark, I'm going to withhold a lot of what I want to say uh, because I don't know if it'd go over too well. But I will say this: uh, it's a pretty interesting film, and honestly, I don't know if it it really should be taught in in history class in a lot of ways, because I guess Rocky ends the Cold War, and that's pretty <laughs> yeah. cool. Yeah, that's pretty with cool. that speech. That speech. With that speech really ended the Cold War. He ends the Cold War, and you know that's pretty cool. History doesn't get taught enough these days in classes, and I think that's one of those things that really should be taught more. Well, we've uh, we've made it only through two picks so far, or two movies so far. However, we at least are through four picks. So uh, let's go to St. Jay, and what's your number five? Please understand that it was so hard. I think number five was hard, hardest to choose because, it's again, it's like picking between my children. But for my number five, I went with... 1986's movie directed by the great James Cameron, Aliens. Listen, this movie, how how do you follow up with Alien, a horror movie in space? We're going to make an action movie out of it. Space Marines, a strong female lead. This gave birth to my favorite Nintendo game, Metroid. Also, for you Xboxers out there, Halo. The whole space aliens and space marines thing came from aliens. Now, listen, I was born in 86, so I didn't see this in theaters, but I will tell you this. When I was a kid, action figures and comic books were all over the place when I was, when I was really young. I saw commercials. Aliens, get the action figures now. Aliens, the comic in stores now. Aliens versus Predator, the video game on Super Nintendo. Pick it up. To this bled well into the 80s and into the early 90s. It's an important film. It was hard for me to make this decision, but at, ultimately I went with number five, Aliens. No, it's a great choice, and uh, you might be hearing a little bit more about that might film later. I comment, but you might be hearing a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, let's head over to T-Man. T-Man, what's your number five? Oh, man, this was a really tough list. It's probably taken so many different iterations, but this is where I, this is where I've landed. So number five, I'm going with... 
1987 science fiction action film RoboCop, directed by nice. Paul Verhaven. Um, the film stars Peter Weller, as the before mentioned, RoboCop. Uh, truly a ridiculous premise, if I've ever heard one, uh, where it's set in a cr- crime run in Detroit, Michigan, in the near future, where a police officer is mur- murdered, basically, and then brought back to life as a RoboCop. And basically just sets out to solve the crime uh, problem in Detroit. And you've got some Reagan era uh, corporate stuff going on there. And it's basically, you know, one of the most over the top action films that I've ever seen. And really, I think Robocop, there'd been nothing like it ever when it was made because it's basically an action film, but it's kind of like over the top action going into humor it's like gonzo action and it's a satire it's a parody i don't know like the tone is so unique and only paul verhoeven can do that type of tone uh he did a similar thing with total recall there you go yeah there you go jj's got the copy and re-watching it it's just so much fun like like i said it is just a truly ridiculous premise and almost a truly ridiculous movie in a lot of ways but it's so rewatchable. Uh, there's so many just moments where you're just like laughing, but also kind of like it shocked. Like what, just when he gets destroyed, like he's getting limbs blown off in the beginning. I'll buy that for a dollar. Yes. That's what I was going to say. Jay. They kept doing that. I'll buy that for a dollar. Never really even understood what that means. Still. Uh, they've got, what about the end where they, the guy goes to the toxics like dump on him. And it's just like, he turns into a mutant. Like he turns into a mutant by the end of it. So anyway, that's my pick for uh for number five. Any comments on Robocop? Well, the last man. bachelor party we went on, we watched that on the way back in my super van on TV, a bunch of guys, and it's just so much fun. It's like and and it, that was a blockbuster. It's not gross, it's just not afraid to be gory, it's not afraid to be abrupt, it's just they didn't do that. I mean, it almost invented like, you know, you get some of those abrupt and and just loud, I guess. I don't know a way to term it, but you get a lot of those movies now. But it it was like a front runner for that. I well, think. Gabe, I think. Yeah, it's a great point. The thing about Robocop, we did re- rewatch it and it holds up so well. It's one of those movies you're not laughing at it. You're laughing with it like it, it's in on the joke and yeah. you're laughing with like it's laughing alongside you. It's genius. Actually, the movie was actually um, surpassing R-rated. It was, in fact, I think it was X-rated when they when they finished filming it. And, and then when it was presented, it. they're like, "Hey, you got to tone this down. You got to cut some stuff out." This movie originally was <laughs> yeah. gore and nude fest because the director. So they so they had to go back and like recut it and tone it down just to make it an R R rating. Jay worded that better. What I meant to say was a gore and nude fest. well t-man i'm I'm one for one on my two guesses that i I thought would be on your list and if this movie wasn't on your list i was going to be highly disappointed because of over the years of our friendship we've watched this movie together several times you talk about it frequently so glad to see that it made your list i'm going to get to my number five pick and i'm going to introduce my movies with uh, a couple of quotes from each of the movies and you guys tell me what the choice is so it belongs in a museum and don't call me junior yeah i already know this one 
Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That's yes. right. You know, you heard me my my last list from last episode. I had Raiders as my number two movie. I had Temple of Doom in my honorable mention. So you should have known how big of an Indiana Jones fan I am. So I had to include The Last Crusade. I had this movie on my list, but it had been so long since I've seen it. I was like, I'm going to watch it over the weekend just to make sure it still holds up really well. I still want it on my list. And the watch over this weekend really solidified my pick. Again, I love this character so much. I was so, it was so comforting just watching him in this film, just watching Indiana Jones. And that can be said about everything except for Crystal Skull. They get the adventure right. They get the villains right. The love interest in this is strong. I like how they have their their relationship in this movie. And although it gets a little bit, maybe a little too supernatural with the invisible bridge and the night at the end, overall, I think the story is right. We probably need to do an episode sometime on like the best movie scores. I don't know if this piece by John Williams would be my favorite, but it's close. I just love the Indiana Jones theme. It's just, it's so iconic and it's just perfect for this character. This movie is really fun and I found myself laughing out loud several times. A big part of that is Sean Connery as the dad. Yes. Just perfect casting yeah. there. I love the dan- deadpan expression when Indy is doing things like, you know, jamming that flagpole into the motorcycle spokes and flips the Nazi and he thinks it's funny and Sean Connery does not think it's funny at all. I love the beginning of this one when when young Indy played by the late River Phoenix. Yes. That's just a great way to start the film. I think the escape from the castle when where Sean Connery is being held is probably the best part or collection of scenes of the movie, just that entire escape and everything that happens. And then finally, the movie ends with that beautiful shot of them riding into the sunset, which if you're a Westerns fan, that that's a great nod to those films. And I also kind of feel like it, it was supposed to be a metaphor for Indy riding off, which I believe was this was probably supposed to be the last film. And so far, it should yeah. have been. But anyway, yes. that was my five pick. Wes, you chose wisely (laughs) (laughs) this is also on my list but let me just say uh shout out to nerd cage live because mark and i just did the 40th anniversary of raiders of the lost ark one of the things that we talked about mark was that before raiders of the lost ark happened spielberg wanted to do a james bond movie and never got to but in this movie the last crusade some people argue it's better than raiders i don't but I know how this is still a great movie. Spielberg finally got his chance at least getting James Bond in his movie, not as James Bond, but as Andy's father, which is a perfect metaphor of saying, hey, James Bond kind of gave birth to Indiana Jones. And having Harrison Ford and Sean Connery is that one-two punch. Oh, man, what more is it to say? I absolutely love this film. Yeah, I agree. This one is actually on my list as well. Spoiler alert. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a great point that you mentioned about Sean Connery, because I've always looked at the dynamic between him and Harrison Ford in this movie as a sort of a passing of the torch. You know, you have, you know, one of the greatest, you know, uh, action heroes of the 1960s, you know, not necessarily reprising his character, but but coming into a, a franchise that was sort of inspired 
in in a lot of ways by the James Bond character. And you have him paired paired off with one of the greatest action heroes of the 1980s. And 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 I think that um that that dynamic of them kind of working together was like almost like a subtle nod, like, okay, you take it from here. I've always seen it that way. And to me, that kind of like adds um a little bit more, a little bit more weight to it. Um you mentioned the opening scene with River Phoenix. A lot of people don't realize that Joaquin Phoenix had a brother who was an actor who was actually probably one of the greatest um, young younger actors of his generation. And I think that that opening scene with him, like basically um, showing how indie becomes indie. You know, like with the, you know, where he falls through the the trap door in the train with the lion and the whips there and he grabs the whip and accidentally gives himself the scar. I just thought that was a fantastic sequence. And, and it's one of the most memorable parts of the film for me. I, I like what you did, Wes. I double Star Wars. So you doubled into you double Indiana Jones. Did. I see what you did. Doubling down. Doubling down on it, and R.I.P. Sean Connery. I, you know, I don't really get sad when you know celebrities die, but for some reason, I, mean, I do. But I mean, like I was upset because I didn't think. You know, I thought Sean Connery was one of those people that stayed the same age forever, and it just really hit me kind of hard. So we do miss you because we did love those movies. You heard it here first. Gabe likes movies enough to be on a movie podcast. Really doesn't care when celebrities die. All right, Mark. Let's head on <laughs> to your number. <laughs> <laughs> all right so so for my so for my number four pick um i i don't think that that you can talk about the late 80s without bringing up eddie murphy and so for my number four pick i chose coming to america because i just remember how i felt coming out of that theater on opening night for this movie. I was a huge Eddie Murphy fan growing up and seeing this movie and seeing all the different characters that he and Arsenio Hall played, the, that story, which is essentially a, a Cinderella story in reverse, sort of telling telling that story from Prince Charming's point of view in a very uh, funny and original way. Um, I, I really like Samuel L. Jackson in the small role that he's in. I mean, every little piece of this movie is just absolutely fantastic. Um, it earned about $288 million at the box office. And a fun fact about this one is that uh, it was directed by John Landis, who also directed Eddie Murphy in Trading Places. Now, they got along great in that movie because Eddie was still very young in the movie business and really needed a guiding hand. But by the time we get to coming to America, that relationship soured and he began to feel that Landis was sort of treating him like a little kid, kind of talking down to him. And so they had a huge falling out as a result of them working together in that movie. But nevertheless, they managed to pull off a fantastic film that we're still talking about now. We have all the the best one-liners from that movie that are still memorable today. Um, you know, we had the recent sequel, which wasn't quite as good, but it brought back all the nostalgic feelings and, and everything like that. So I, I think that this movie cannot be ignored in terms of those 80s blockbusters. Great pick, Mark. And I just because you just said it, I've heard such mixed reviews on the sequel. I haven't seen it yet. What, what are your views on the sequel? Watch it or don't? 
if I'm being nice about it, I would say uh, fast forward to the to the very end of the movie, like the very last <laughs> low expectations, and you'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, it it really depends on what you go in for, right? So if you're really expecting uh, original material and a lot of like um, things that you things that you wouldn't expect. I wouldn't go in for that. But if you're looking to see some of the older characters and you're just going in purely from a nostalgic point of view, like, hey, what's that? What's the barber up to? You know, what's uh, what's Mr. McDowell up to? Like, you might enjoy it from that perspective. But that said, that last five, six minutes of the movie are are worth sitting through the rest of it for. I would I would say that. Mark, I actually I don't know if you'll believe it or not, but I saw this movie for the first time within the last two months. Oh, wow. I bought it. It was in a $5 bin. And I was like, why have I never seen this? I'm just not super big on comedy movies. I just never sure. have been. I find my humor is a little bit different. And, and uh, but I watched it. My wife and I watched it. She had seen a little bit of it before and we were cracking up. We loved it. And uh, <laughs> great pick. All right, Gabe, back to you. Well, my number four, I said I was going to do these scenarios, so I'll do one. So we've got a movie, and it's about air battles, but there's not even any real shooting in it. It's basically, we got Tom Cruise as Maverick versus Iceman, and it is spectacular. It plays like a commercial for the Navy, and you get to see all these fantastic planes, but you get to see Tom Cruise, you get to see Val Kilmer, you get to see some wonderful hanky-panky scenes um, that are shot in slow motion. It is just spectacular. Of course, the movie I'm talking about is Top Gun, and that's why I said I would do all these descriptions myself, Wes, because they're spectacular. The movie's Top Gun, guys. I, You know, it's not a good movie. I recognize that. But, like ben, Bill Van Bagel says, I love this movie. I've seen it a ton of times. The soundtrack is amazing. I didn't know about Great Balls of Fire until I watched this movie. Then I was in love with Great Balls of Fire, the song. You've got Highway to the Danger Zone. I mean, everybody loves that. You know, I could just watch a two-hour movie of just those planes taking off of aircraft carriers, which is pretty much what I did. You know, you watch this movie and you're like, this is where our tax dollars are going because the government did actually send some money to have this movie made for recruiting purposes for the Navy and the Air Force. But, you know, I just, I love it all. I love, you know, she, she's lost that loving feeling. Me and Tommy tried that out in the bar once. It didn't play out good because nobody else started singing. <laughs> it was just us. We got but booed. It actually got booed. I love the little one-liners like, Slider, you stink. It's it's just a good movie. Tom Cruise needs a lot of showers during this movie. You know, it's just good. I, I really recommend it. That volleyball scene... Reminded me of the days when me, Wes, and Tommy were out playing volleyball against our friends because it was pretty much the same thing, same abs. I just didn't think they could make a movie without actual shooting good, but it is so good. And uh, so many iconic scenes, I think, is the big thing here. And the and I think what makes it so good is the sound editing and the soundtrack itself mixed with the iconic scenes and the iconic performances of the, of the actors and actresses. There was a roller coaster at Kings Island that I always wanted to ride. And I remember when I finally got to watch this movie was about the same time I was able to ride it for the first time. And it was awesome. That's it. I just want to add shameless plug. Uh, Mark and I actually just did a recent look back because it just it just turned 35 a month ago. 
and I rewatched it for the first time in decades. I liked it. <laughs> I didn't think I was yeah. going to, but I did. And I guess the thing I can appreciate about the movie, those aerial shots, man, are yes. amazing. I can't believe they pulled that off in 1986. Mm. I, I just, oh, I went in thinking, like, oh, Mark, do we really have to watch this movie? <laughs> but I ended up, like, enjoying it, and it was a fun look back. And uh, I am actually quite excited for the sequel. My only thing is, like, yeah, we get to see Tom Cruise really fly a plane for real this time. But my thing is, what are you going to do about the soundtrack? That soundtrack is, like, unmatched. Right. How are they going to pull off in the sequel? That's all I got. But, but yeah, I it's not my cup of tea, per se. But I have the ultimate, utmost respect to the movie. And as crazy as the man is, I root for Tom Cruise because he was born in Syracuse. So I root for the guy. Um, yeah, he's a little loony, but you can't deny he is the hardest working actor in Hollywood, and it shows. Yeah. There's a sequence in the middle there where Tom Cruise or somebody who's playing volleyball in jeans. Yeah, Tom it's, Cruise is Tom in Cruise Tom playing Cruise volleyball in jeans. He keeps checking his watch. He's like flexing, checking his watch. He's got to go to that date. Yeah. Right. And then what is the first thing you always do on a date? What do you do, guys? Do you, you, you know, ask for? You ask, what? can I take a shower? You ask yeah. to take a shower. <laughs> that and that really explains a lot about Top Gun. Um, not my favorite movie, but it is an iconic movie. All right, Jay, take it away. What's your number four pick? So uh, my number four pick, we already discussed it, but uh, directed by uh, John McTernan, Predator is my number four. I just watched it again like uh, earlier today, and I was like really surprised at how well it does hold up. Some of the effects are not quite as good as you would expect, but some of the tech that the pe- that the Predator had, in my opinion, is more realistic to like what uh, would be, you know, like it's more, it's closer to actual futurism than like a lot of the retro future stuff that we would see in other 80s movies. Like, for example, like in Aliens, uh, all the computers are, are AS400s. Like they're, you know, it's all like, you know, DOS looking, like no graphics. A lot of the hardware in it is like very antiquated looking, and but that's supposed to be the future. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and there's a lot of films like that. I'm not picking on your pick, Jay. Don't worry. I love Aliens too, but um, but yeah, in in Predator, I like the fact that um, you know, like the 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 uh the device that he has on his arm is all touch screens and stuff and it's all like really cool i just thought that like some of that art like some of that art direction was a little bit ahead of its time you know what i mean it was like it's a really really impressive movie that's all i got to say about it i could go on and on about it but yeah I, I mark really no cares. it's a great movie yeah i do <laughs> all right t-man number four So number four, I'm going to lead it off here, guys. I think you'll know right off the bat because it's going to be Bueller. Bueller. (laughs) Anybody? Is Bueller here? (laughs) So, of course, we're going with Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the 1986 teen comedy film directed by the great John Hughes. So Ferris Bueller is just one of those iconic films again. And, you know, I would argue it's it's three of the greatest of these three, like, little genres. So I consider it the greatest teen comedy. It's my favorite, at least. 
it's the greatest Chicago movie, like movie set in Chicago that takes the best usage of like Chicago landmarks and like going through the city. I think it, it's the best of that because they like hit up, up all the major things that you think about when you go to Chicago. They go to Wrigley Field, uh, the Art Institute. Um, where else do they go? I had a whole list here. Sears Tower. Uh, so they just go throughout the whole city. And then I think it's also the best of the day out movies going on a trip on a day out. It's one of those movies. They don't make enough of those, but I always like those films where you got characters that are just going to go somewhere. Maybe not like on a huge trip or anything, but they're just going um, somewhere. And I think it's the best of those sequences. So of course it's got an iconic legendary performance by Matthew Broderick. And honestly, it's it's such a great performance and such a great character. I don't think he ever could overcome it in some way. He is basically Ferris Bueller. Like he's been good in other movies, and I've always liked him as an actor. But like I always in Godzilla. Think... Yeah, exactly. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> Why'd you mention that? <laughs> Maybe not one of his best. Yeah, he just never could overcome the Ferris Bueller. But that's okay because how many actors can say? Uh, I was the coolest uh, high school character ever. And I've wa- I rewatched it recently. It still holds up. I mean, you got the subplot with the principal breaking into his house. What is that? What is he doing? It's so <laughs> weird. Uh, but it's so funny. Like, you love that. You got Charlie Sheen showing up as a drug addict um, convict in the middle of the film. Uh, so in a lot of ways, it's a documentary. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so many cool little sequences, a little, little subplots that you love. I mean, I just love the ending where the principal gets on the bus and he's walking. <laughs> and it's got the music. I'm not going to do it, but it's like. Chicka-chicka, dun-dun-dun. Everybody knows it. It's so great. Yeah, Uh, yeah, everybody loves that music. So there's just so many little sequences like that. Him running through the yards at the end to beat his parents. Oh, man, it is just so great. And I'll just leave you all with this quote, because I think it's one of my favorite quotes of all time. Basically, the principal's asking Simone, you know, what's up with Ferris? Is he okay? Is he popular? Um, And he's like, oh, he's very popular, Ed. The sportsos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, waste toys, dweebies, dickheads, they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. My number four, again, I want to throw out the quote, Hans, Bubby, I'm your white knight. And my number four is Die Hard, one of the best action films of all time. We covered Die Hard in a full episode, episode 20 of Real Talk. If you want my full thoughts on it, go check out that episode. You'll get, we walk through the movie, we talk all about it, so there's no point in me just going through everything again. I'll just say, It holds up exceptionally well. Bruce Willis has never been better. It's got a top five movie villain of all time in Hans Gruber. And it really outlined, it it just, it changed action films forever. It outlined what the future of action movies would be. And as we found out, it's a Christmas movie, right, Gabe? Um, In case you missed that, I agree to disagree to that. On a side note, Wes, Never mind. I, I won't go down there. <laughs> it is absolutely a Christmas movie. There I'm is no debate. Negative. There you are it crazy. is no debate. It is. There it is, is plenty movie. of debate. I'm with Gabe on this one. It is definitely not a Christmas movie, especially the fact that it, it was released in July. 
of, of 88. If it was a Christmas movie, why not release Wait, it? So was Batman it, Returns was what? also released in the summertime. That's a Christmas movie, too. Well, what I found out is these people that want to make it a Christmas movie want to make everything a Christmas movie. Wes was on T-Man side. Rocky IV is not a Christmas movie. Rocky IV is not a Christmas movie, but Die Hard certainly is. And what happens on Christmas, Die Hard happens the the day before. I'm not going down this rabbit hole. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, Wes, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but... (laughs) Because <laughs> but you, you triggered me when you said the Christmas thing. I'm sorry. No, you're good. No, I, I was done. I was done. Oh, okay. Can we I just I want to add a couple things. Um, this was almost on my list. Fun fact: it's also directed by the same man who directed uh, Predator, uh, John McTiernan. Now, here's the fascinating thing about Die Hard. Now, besides that, it is a Christmas movie. The one of the most fascinating things is that coming from an era where we the action hero Stallone and Schwarzenegger defined the action hero at that time. I mean, yeah, I'll say that Clint Eastwood kind of gave birth to it, but Stallone and Schwarzenegger took it to the next level. Then here comes this dude named Bruce Willis, solid actor, but he he may not be as big and larger than life like Stallone and Schwarzenegger were. Don't get me wrong, Bruce Willis is still big. I I, I wouldn't mess with him. Okay, Bruce is still big, but he wasn't massive like like Arnold or Stallone, not even close. But he was like the relatable guy. And not not saying Bruce Willis the person, I'm saying the the character. That Bruce Willis was the relatable guy, the guy you can have a beer with, the guy you want to hang out with, like and you kind of feel like, hey, I kinda could do this too. Like he's he he's he's an action star, but he's also one of us. So it kind of gave birth to not just like the Schwarzenegger-Arnold stereotype of an action hero, but then we got this new action hero in Bruce Willis, which ultimately gave birth to, like, other stars who you wouldn't think as, like, an action hero became action heroes. So that's what I said. So Bruce Willis was, like, the new wave of action hero that that Die Hard ultimately gave birth to. Yeah, I'd like to touch on that as well, too. Um, speaking as, like, the, the old man in the room, um, the vibe at that time... Uh, around this movie before it premiered was that it wasn't going to go anywhere. Like mainly because it didn't have a big A-list action star in it. Uh, you know, Bruce Willis was famous, but he it was he was famous for uh, like a, a procedural TV show called Moonlighting, right? Like, and he wasn't doing a ton of action in that movie. So his... Um, his presence in the in the film didn't relate a lot of confidence in terms of like, yeah, this is going to be like what we all now know what it turned into. And so it was a really uh, extremely pleasant surprise to actually see this every man sort of do the things that he was doing, like doing the impossible. And it it instilled in you that like, you don't have to be a Schwarzenegger. You don't have to be a Stallone. You could be like just a normal dude and, and do these things. Of course, this is all fantasy and stuff like that. But it, it really like put that in your mind and it sort of really changed the game because you did start to see a lot of other actors do these types of films after Top, um, I'm sorry, after Die Hard. And so, yeah, it's an important movie for that reason. Oh, great points. All right, guys, we're ready for round three. Mark? What's your number three? Okay, so I feel like as this show is kind of progressing, 
I'm seeing a lot of great picks that are actually on my list as well. And um, my next pick is one that you chose, Wes, which is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Nice. For most of the reasons, for almost all the reasons that you picked, fantastic score, brilliant action scenes, particularly that opening scene that we talked about, the dynamic between uh, between uh, Sean Connery and Harrison Ford in that movie. You know, they up the ante with uh, all of the stunts, all the action sequences, even the color grading is like much deeper and richer than the previous films. And fun fact about this one is that Spielberg did not necessarily want to direct it, but because of his friendship with Lucas and his commitment to do a trilogy, he he decided to just go ahead and go through with it. And the result was fantastic. I'm so glad that he did actually commit to it. And how often can you say, you know how we always say as a common trope in trilogies that the third one's the worst? Oh no, it's it's the the threequel curse. Not with this movie. Mm. Just saying. The right. fact that they're able to pull off a third movie at that level is mind-boggling. Yeah, and that's strong. Eight years after the original film, too. Yeah. And, it, and it wound up being that strong. So, love the pick, obviously. Mark, Gabe, you're number three. My number three. My number three. I'm going to do my synopsis. Sigourney Weaver wakes up to a nightmare. Foreshadowing. She's going to have to relive the same nightmare that she just lived in the movie Alien. My number three is Aliens. And I, I don't want to say a lot. I'm going to be, keep it quick. But the scene, and I'm going to set up the scene for you guys. That so This was I, you know, on and off my list. The scene that sold this, this movie for me is not the scene that sells most people. It's the scene when the people are going to find, you know, they're going to find all the bodies. And they notice that all the bodies are in one place and they're walking up on them and it suddenly switches from normal space room to alien cocoon, like looks like you're in, on the inside of a body. And then right when it switches, they they channel down to them and say, hey guys, you can't shoot your gun, you're over a nuclear reactor or whatever it is. And they're like, so now they know they're screwed and they can't shoot their guns. It's like being at Woodstock and having to pee or do number two and you can't find a toilet anywhere. Like these people are screwed. It's like and, being at Woodstock with no drugs, Gabe. I mean, what yeah. do you do then? What do you do then? They know they're getting ready to get destroyed. And what ensues is just incredible action from that point until the end of the movie. The other only other little thing I'll say is I watched this movie with Rachel and she's like this can't be good when they started walking into that section. And my only comment is at the very end, don't you guys hate when you're waiting on your elevator and there's a mama alien that you just shot a flamethrower at all of her eggs and she's clearly ticked off chasing you and your elevator just isn't going to come. It's just I hate that. That really grinds my gears. But other than that, man, this movie I mean, like I said, from that point to the end of the movie is nonstop action. Thank you. What's happened to your garage, my gears? <laughs> <That's> your... <laughs> that, that wasn't very good. Let me tell you something else. Grinds, grind your gears is grinding T-Man's gears, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if I have anything else. Bill Paxson in this movie grinds my yes. gears. Oh, that's just one of the best sequences ever. Game over, man. Game over. <laughs> 
<laughs> he's at his peak crazy in this movie. A, oh, he's amazing. Great pick, Gabe. That's one of the best all-timers, definitely. And that sequence you mentioned where it switches from like the video to then the shot of just the hallway with like whatever it is, the alien stuff is just great. And that <laughs> stuff you're talking about where it then goes into the they can't use your guns, and that's just screenwriting 101, and it's just perfect. Well, they really, yeah. what they did was they took the handheld stuff that really Scott did in Alien, and then they just used it except for it being the actual camera on the soldiers. So it was really cool how he upgraded what he did a lot of uh, what really Scott had done in this movie, and that was one of the things. So that was Gabe's number three pick, James Cameron's Aliens, and we're headed over to St. Jay. What you got for your number three? So my number three is written, produced, starred, and directed by Oscar winner Sylvester Stallone in Rocky IV. I must break you. (laughs) (laughs) He's like hitting a piece of iron. I didn't say anything uh, earlier. Rocky IV has always been what I would term a guilty pleasure. Mm -hmm. It's um, it, it is a movie that's always fun to watch. The boxing match at the end is just so utterly ridiculous. It's yep, like very unrealistic. <laughs> like how what? how happy would you be if that was a pay-per-view that you were watching? Oh, oh you'd be ecstatic, right. man. That, that would be great. <laughs> it's like Rocky is a is a, a boxer, a heavyweight champion of the world, never once has blocked a punch. His <laughs> forehead blocks all the punches. You, know you can tell he's brain dead. That? I find that kind of strange because in Rocky three, Mark back me up on this. He mm-hmm. learned how to fight in the style of Apollo Creed, right. Floyd Mayweather style, where you're dancing around, keeping your distance and picking your punches. And then in Rocky four, he goes back to the, the Joe Frazier. I'm going to come at you. And then he's not blocking a single jab, just getting, just he's like, getting why did he throw everything that Apollo taught him? He just threw right out the window. He can't remember. i've always attributed that to like and i don't know if this is going to sound um like uh coarse or not but in my mind i'm like he's thinking that what apollo used did not work and so he has to like go back to you know he has to like re-strategize and come up with a new way to fight or go back to you know like you said like his old way and see if that worked so that's a great point mark and and let me ask you all this is is our rocky experts on here i noticed you guys are a big fan is rocky or should have rocky been charged with accessory to murder because he didn't throw the towel if you notice Yes, and they're saying throw the towel. No, the, I mean he's obviously no. almost dead, and he just and sits there. He lets thing, him die. No, I'm so glad you that's brought his that up, Tommy. Friend. No, no, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's one of the problems. <laughs> Listen, Rocky Four is actually one of my least favorite Rocky movies. No cap. I just have to mention on this list because it's important to pop culture. But one thing that bothers me about the movie, and I'm hoping that the director's cut will address it, is like, yeah, he should have threw the. You know, that was a controversy. Should he throw in the towel? They, they didn't even touch on it. After it was all over, they just went from that to the funeral. Like, yeah. would well, his family, his friends come like, yo, why didn't you throw the towel? Yes. I'm, and and even, you even see the newspaper. There's a quick part of the newspaper that says, uh, is Rocky responsible for Apollo's death? I'm hoping that the director's cut addresses is. this. Just saying. He told him not to throw in the towel. No, you're right. You're right. But that doesn't mean 
I mean, that's just the thing, though. You 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 he's, know he as a fighter to... when to throw the towel in because you if know it's like you uh, can't take a beating like uh, that. I would throw in the towel for any of you all. Tommy, I didn't ask you about this. <laughs> Mark, if you, Mark, if you're in my corner, throw. I trust your judgment. Throw in the towel. Yes, there's right. Punch, yeah. likewise. Just throw in the towel for me because I'm done. <laughs> yes. I think Apollo knew he was gonna die when he was in that corner. He's like, no matter what. Here's the thing about. Here's the thing. Here's the one thing I will. Def- I'm, not, I'm not defending. I think Rocky. I personally think Rocky made the wrong decision. But the one thing I will defend is like he said in that corner, never don't throw in the towel, no matter what. Apollo died the way he wanted to die. He went out like a warrior. He went out like a champ. The last thing he heard before he died was Apollo, Apollo, Apollo. And his fans were raving. They were, they, the fans knew that he was losing, but they cheered for him anyway. He got to look at his wife one last time, gave her the thumbs up. And I think that's why he didn't want – I think he knew he was going to die. And he just like – he said, don't throw in the towel. So he died in his mind. He died a champion. He died as a beloved icon. But I, I ultimately think Rocky made the wrong decision. Yeah. Also, very dark fan theory – is that he went out the way that he wanted to go out. I I kind of feel like he just found out about Donnie in that moment. <laughs> and he was just like, I can't I can't tell Marianne about this. There's there's only one way out. Jeez. Yeah. No! <laughs> See, yeah, our, our audience is like, what? The yeah, never <laughs> You, like really, you haven't seen Creed, the movie Creed. You don't get the joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, you got yeah. You gotta you gotta watch Creed to get that. Guys, Our, please forgive me for that. There's probably like a, about a hundred people or more that are probably turning off this podcast right now after hearing that joke. No. I had to let it out. Type of stuff, if I people feel like. are coming back to listen to this episode, they've been through this mess with us plenty of times. I'm sure this is a breath of fresh air to them. So, <laughs> T-Man number three. All right, I'm going with another quote. I'm basically just stealing Wes's uh, whole gimmick here because um, <laughs> I like it. Um, let's see here. It starts out with, I'm going to try to do the best. I want him dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want him to go to his house and piss on his ashes. Al Capone, untouchables. the untouchables. Two for two, team, man. I got him. Yeah, Wes I knew they were going to be on the list. I, I had to put a untouchables on here. It is one of my all-time favorite films. I grew up watching this movie. Um, like it's just one of those movies I've rewatched. Probably one of the re- most rewatched movies for me. Of course, it's directed by Brian De Palma at his absolute peak. You got written by the great David Mamet. It stars Kevin Costner, Andy Garcia, Rob De Niro as Al Capone, and then Sean Connery again. We're bringing him back in his Oscar-winning turn. Of course, it's based on the true story of Elliot Ness taking down with his Untouchables crew the, of course, notorious gangster Al Capone set in Chicago in the 1930s. It's kind of like, if you haven't seen it, it's kind of like the pop version or like the, the MTV version of The Godfather. Like, it's just so well made through that Brian De Palma, you know, lens. He's doing all his, like, he brings out all of his camera gimmicks and he is doing it all. He's doing the most in this film. And it's got, you know, a great musical score. One of the best musical scores, in my opinion, great performances. Of course, we already talked about Sean Connery, uh, just going all out. 
I think I love that performance. Of course, it's also kind of one of what the Oscars, they love to do that, you know, kind of a career achievement award also. But he deserved that Oscar win. So many great sequences. I mean, just a couple off the top of my head that I love. I love the Canadian raid sequence where you've got the Mounties coming from Canada. I mean, it's just so much fun. And when they get on the horses and um, Sean Carney looks back, he's like, what, are you going to die from something? And he just gets on and they just start riding towards them on horses and the music. It's just amazing. You So you've got that sequence. You've got the Sean Connery death sequence, which is just so gut-wrenching. I mean, it's awful, but it's so so well shot. And then you've got the amazing train train sequence, where it's basically a homage to the Battle Potemko, the 1920s Russian film. And you got the slow motion, you got the baby carriage going down the steps. Just an amazing sequence. And then at the very end, you've got the sequence uh, where he's going up against his uh, the other gangster that he hates. Um, I can't even think of his name. Real guy, though. And he throws him off the top of the roof. So, so many great sequences. So many great lines in this movie. The music's great. The, I mean, the dialogue is great. The acting's great. The, just the clothing. Everything is so amazing about it. And I'll leave you all with this great line here. One of the great lines of all time. It says, you want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife. You pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You sent one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. Great pick. Tima, and you and I have talked about this many times, and I've talked about it on our show, but uh, I've always felt like Brian De Palma is one of the all-time best directors, best shooters of footage. It's everything that he does with the camera, the way he sets everything up. I love it so much. He's not always working with the best material. As far as his talent, it's undeniable. Uh, great pick. Yeah, and Wes, uh, great point there. He is really, truly one of the great technical virtuosos of of cinema. Um, and like you said, when he has good material, and this movie's directed by David Mamet, one of the great playwrights in in the 20th century. I mean, he he can produce just amazing cinema, and I think that's that's what this is. There's several people that have told me they haven't seen this, and I hadn't seen it until T Man made me see it, see it. Near perfect movie. It's not what you're thinking. Sit down and watch it. That's all I'll say. That was T-Man's number three pick. And we'll go to my number three. And my quote for this one is, Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. Top Gun, 1986. Yes. So I actually am wearing my Top Gun shirt as I I record this. That's Uh, an awesome shirt, too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I've always been a huge fan of Top Gun. Risky Business put Tom Cruise on the map, but Top Gun really catapulted him into movie stardom. I saw this movie for the first time in the very early 90s. My uncle taped it off TV, and we watched it together. Been in love with the movie ever since. All of the scenes away from the dogfighting and the aircraft carrier, they're so freaking 80s that it hurts, but it's really, honestly, what makes the film enduring. Uh, Maverick, to me, has always been my favorite Tom Cruise character. I think it's his best character. And maybe Caffey uh, from uh, um, Few Good, Good Men. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just great. He plays that cocky, confident, tortured soul, gotta prove something to the world character. He plays it so well. Um, the movie, again, it's great action, great soundtrack, as we've talked about. Gabe, amazing volleyball scenes. 
it gets emotional with Goose's death at one point. Uh, and then just a couple of what I think were the strongest scenes of the movie is when Maverick thinks Charlie is criticizing him in front of all the other pilots. And then she chases him down on his motorcycle and, and tells him that she's fallen for him. I thought that's a really good scene. Uh, they just don't do characters falling in love very good anymore. And I think they did a great job in this. <laughs> And uh, when Viper gets Maverick and Goose because Maverick leaves his wingman and he kind of learns that that lesson, that's a great scene. And then finally, I love at the end where Maverick gets his mojo back. He gets back into the fight. It's like one of those like you, you cheer moments and him and Iceman make peace at the end. Just a great ending. That's my number three. I'm going to say one other thing that I left off of mine, Wes, and I'll bring it back on yours. And because you said it. I almost don't watch this movie every time it's on because I get so sad every time Goose dies. Like that's <laughs> how much of an impact. Yeah. That's how good it's shot in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't say this, you know, when we talked about it earlier uh, in the episode, but when we did our look back, uh, I guess it's been a couple months, Jay. That was my first time ever seeing it. Like when it was in the theaters, I never. Like I actively avoided watching the movie for reasons un unknown. Like I don't even remember why I didn't want to see it. But uh, over the years, I just never bothered to like sit down and watch it until we were like, you know, the anniversary's coming up. Let's watch it. You know, like 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 let's talk about it. And you know, I'm so glad that I did. You know, like I I still feel like some of the dialogue doesn't hold up the way that it the way that it should. But man, those action scenes, those 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 uh those fighter jets and and yeah. all the stuff that happens with those dog fights is just incredible it's like unmatched and everything that um all the aerial stuff that they do in that movie i feel like it's been mimicked ever since anything that has to do with like uh any kind of aerial combat it all all roads lead back to that movie i just think that it's so badass and it's a great pick wes thank you sir audience we're down to our number two and number one picks and again these movies are getting four and five points each so this could really sway uh what's going to happen with our uh with the movie that's going to win so mark kick us off here what's your number two so yeah so i have another sort of repeat <laughs> um uh, my number two is ferris bueller's day off um Wow. T man, I agree two, with you. I was not expecting one hundred percent. Here's the reason why I feel like well, there's a couple of reasons, right? My my number two reason is that you know while it only earned seventy million dollars, which is small compared to some of the other like big '80s blockbusters that we've talked about that have done like two hundred, three hundred, four hundred million. This only cost five million dollars to make. The return on investment on this movie is like fourteen hundred percent. It's it, it was the it was the number ten grossing uh, film of nineteen eighty six, but it had the highest return of any film that year and probably any film that decade. I mean, it, and and the other reason that this is an important movie to me, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it to another. Uh, John Hughes movie. We did an episode. Actually, we did a three-part episode on Home Alone, right? And in that, we kind of talked about how 
the nostalgia connection for that movie has to do with the age that you saw it at, right? So most people that love Home Alone uh, identify with Kevin McAllister because they were around that age when they saw it. Well, mm -hmm. I was around the age of Ferris Bueller when that movie came out. And so to my generation, this is our home alone. Mark, did this you is skip like... school? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Art gala? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> but but basically, you know, if you were like in, in eighth, ninth grade and this movie came out, you wanted to be Ferris Bueller. You saw yourself in that kid. Like you wanted to be the kid that got along with all the other kids in school that everybody liked that could basically get away with whatever they wanted to, including not just skipping school and just, you know, staying and, you know, staying at home or like doing something mundane, but having like the ultimate day off and bringing your friends along with the ride. That was sort of the dream of every like junior high schooler. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I'd put it at my number two. I would put it at my number one, but you're going to see in a minute why I chose my number one. I, I'm surprised, but that's awesome. Mark, yeah. I have a feeling I know what your number one is going to be, <laughs> but uh, yeah. we'll obviously wait until next round. Gabe, your number two. Well, guys, I'm going to try to do this thing Wes has been doing. Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? Yeah, <laughs> I got to tell you, I'm wearing my shirt today, guys. All right. So um, my grandfather uh, died when my dad was 14, but I had a pawpaw. My, uh, my grandmother's twin was married to a wonderful man, and he took me to all these awesome movies when he probably shouldn't have. He took me to see Batman in the theater, but they had these like late theaters. like they were. He would stay out for like a year and a half, and it was cheaper to go. So I was almost eight when I went and saw Batman in the theater, and he still probably shouldn't have taken me to see this movie in retrospect after just rewatching it. And he also took me to see Air Force One in the theater, T-Man. I thought you'd like that little fact. But um, I felt this movie is where I fell in love with Tim Burton. Um, not kidding you, because it, this Gotham City is spectacular. And this is when I realized that Tim Burton, Tim Burton's my favorite director by the time, by the way. Tim Burton takes you to a completely different world in his uh, in his movies. I, I think Michael Keaton and, is the best Batman. And after rewatching it, I didn't remember how good Jack Nicholson was. And I really fought for Heath Ledger in our episode. But my gosh, he is good. I, I honestly, after rewatching it, like I think they're tied. Like he makes the movie when he's on the screen. That little commercial he shoots about like. <laughs> that he love, puts on there. Love that love Joker. That Joker. <laughs> love that Joker. I mean, it's spectacular. Honey, you'll never believe what happened to me today. And then his wife sitting there having <laughs> his whole face is white. Like there, his laugh when he shakes that guy's hand with the buzzer and he's like talking to him while he's a corpse. He's like, I'm talking to a corpse. I mean, he's just so iconic. Um, but that's I mean it's it's when Batman was in his prime. In his prime, um, it, it's it's so good. I, I also had a tiny crush on uh, what's the girl's name in this movie? Vicky Kim Basinger. Kim Basinger. I had a tiny Alfred? crush. Alfred. I had a tiny crush on Alfred for a long period of time, guys. But no, it's a really good. It's a really good scene, and I love how I love the Joker's character. I love how he gets out that big gun to shoot the bat 
like flying device. I love that sequence. <laughs> and I love even down to the in the end when Batman finally punching him, he's like, You wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you? It's just <laughs> such an iconic performance. It went for it on all levels. I think it shocked a lot of parents that took their kids to see Batman, but who cares? They should have stuck with Tim Burton for all three. St. Jay, number two. My number two is also 1980s nine Batman. Nice. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Mark, back me up on this. This changed the landscape for superhero movies forever. Yes. Prior to Batman. Let's let's take it way back. The first two Superman movies are beloved and they're are un- untouchable. But somewhere along the line, Superman 3 happened, Superman 4 happened, and for all you Marvel fans out there, Howard the Duck happened, okay? So comic book movies in the mid to late 80s were in a really, really bad spot. Tim Burton only had, what, two movies under his belt? Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice. Michael Keaton was the least likely candidate to play Batman. You know, Clint Eastwood's name was out there. There were other big... No one wanted Michael Keaton to play Batman. I mean, I wasn't... I don't remember it because I was too young to remember. But the way, the way people flipped out about Ben Affleck and Heath Ledger, it was a lot worse when Michael Keaton was cast in there. In fact, there were, like, news channels and newspapers out there bashing the idea. Yeah. And, again, Gabe, you touched on it. This is the best Gotham City. It was so otherworldly, so noir. It was so out there. It was. It's just so. Just visually, it's so appealing. That gothic noir look of Gotham City we haven't had ever since. And like I said, moving like, and then movies in the '90s tried so hard to, to capture that magic that Batman. There was Dick Tracy. There was. Um, you know uh, the crow. Uh, there, the lot. There was a lot of misses on top of that. And, the shadow. And the, yeah, they they try to capture what Tim Burton did with Batman and couldn't even come close. It just it just changed. Then just changed comic book movies and super. It changed movies forever. It's just and it just put Tim Burton in another stratosphere. And the one thing I appreciate about this movie that we haven't seen in any Batman movie since. Okay, so early on we get we get three confrontations between the Batman and the Joker. The first confrontation we get, it's Batman and uh, Jack before he fell into the acid and became the Joker. The hey, real quick, con- Jay, I'm sorry, I have to do this. Why did they have all those giant vats of acid and magma and everything <laughs> sitting in factories lying around back in the 80s and 90s? Does anybody know? <laughs> what were they doing? I have no idea. <laughs> no safety regulations, Gabe. We None. I don't have rules. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad they got the, 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 the comic book accuracy right there of the of the Joker's origin falling into the uh chemicals. Now we get a second confrontation when it's Bruce Wayne and the full blown Joker, and of course that line that you that Gabe famously just said. And then you know, it just and Batman's caught. You know, Bruce Wayne's caught off guard. Like, wait, what did you just say? And then finally, the final confrontation: full blown Batman and the Joker. 
And then he says straight up, you killed my parents. Even though that does deviate from the Batman comics, it was a nice touch that Tim Burton and who, and they didn't know they were going to make more of this. But no one knew it was, this was going to be a hit. If, so, yeah, it's just there's so much to appreciate about this movie. It just changed movies forever. And I just, ugh, I wanted to put this number one, but I just couldn't. You guys will find out. what my, If you haven't figured out what my number one is already, it was so close. It was a toss-up between this, this other movie and Batman. This is, you know, me being uh, the comic book fan that I am and and also, you know, the film fan that I am. This is like the perfect convergence of those two things, you know, to sort of take you back to 1989. There really was not um, a landscape for comic book movies the way that there is now. You know, people thought of comic books and that type of fare as kid stuff. And when Batman came out in 89 it really like flipped flipped the script for a lot of people like where you know they went in expecting the sort of 1960s like Adam West sort of Batman that's that was their in their mind that's what Batman was but you know here comes Tim Burton and he takes his influence from the Dark Knight Returns and makes a darker more adult version and uh, people just ate it up. I mean, not just me. I mean, I obviously went and saw it maybe like 15, 16 times in the theater. But you had um, parents that took their kids to see this movie and fell in love with it themselves and then went to go see it multiple times. It was a huge, huge hit. It earned about $411 million, almost $412 million at the box office in that in that summer alone. Um, it was just a phenomenal like runaway hit. And like Jay said, it really changed the game in terms of how we as adults like look at that genre. It, it really opened opened that genre up and actually created a, created that as something viable for future. All right, T-Man, what's your number two? So number two, it's a film we've already talked about, and and I had a feeling we would definitely talk about it before I got to number two, but it's going with Die Hard. So I love Christmas movies. I love Christmas in July movies. You know, any movie that's about Christmas, set at Christmas, themes are Christmas related. Um, the plot is Christmas. Ah! The characters talk about Preach! Christmas. Santa Claus is in there. Christmas music, Christmas everything. Really, that's the type of movie I like. Preach. That's really why. Yeah, pre, right, Jay. Uh, that's why I really wanted to focus on Die Hard this episode. <laughs> so uh, my fans out there, everybody agrees, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. But anyway, all joking aside, um, it's it's just one of the great all time movies. Wes did uh, talked about it earlier. We have a whole episode covering Die Hard. If you want to hear that, hear more about all that, Gabe and I actually have an epic debate around is it a Christmas movie or not. It's actually a really good debate, and I think you can come down on either side of it after listening to that. Uh, so not, I'm not going to spend a whole lot more else on it. One of the great action films. It's iconic. Mark, you did a great job talking about Bruce Willis, and Jay did also, talking about how you know uh, he was so different than every other action hero before him. And I'll just leave everybody with a little nugget here. Um, also, a couple of things. Hans Gruber, one of the great all-time villains with yes. Alan Rickman. I mean, you can't go without saying that. It's and it's true. just shot so well. Rewatching it, the cinematography, 
the movement of the camera. It looks so modern. It just looks so good still. And uh, I think, Jay, you mentioned that. That is John McTiernan, again, who did uh, Predator also. And then I'll leave with this final nugget on the movie. So I was researching it, I think, for the first one. Um, and one of the actors that was originally going to play John, John McClane was um, Frank Sinatra. So Frank Sinatra don't play him. <laughs> And can you imagine that? Like he's he's getting shot by terrorists and he's like singing like "Fly Me to the Moon." That's my best Frank Sinatra uh, voice, by the way, guys. I don't know if you like that or not. But can you imagine that at him playing that? I mean, what about a what if like sliding door wow. scenario? Sinatra and Sam Jackson running through a city and dying. I would three. love that. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been amazing. I, I will comment, Tommy. I will tell you my favorite scene in that movie is when Hans Gruber and Bruce Willis have a cigarette together. They've been through all this carnage, yeah. and Hans Gruber looks over at Bruce Willis, and Bruce Willis looks back at Hans Gruber and says, this is for sure not a Christmas movie. That's my favorite <laughs> scene of the whole movie, because it's awesome. It's in the director's cut. It's in the director's, <laughs> right, it's in the director's cut. Yeah. Well, as you guys can see, Gabe and I are still rehashing our Christmas debate uh, yes. six months later. And I have a feeling we'll still be doing it six months from now. Well, we'll have to have you guys come on our channel around Christmas time. And we can debate that. Heck yeah. yeah. But with Again. that, with a whole yeah. Ooh, Heck yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, guys. I'll give you my number two. And I'm going to get real original here. My quote for this one is, I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Yes. I recently saw this movie again for probably the 30th time. And it'd been a while since I'd seen it. And I think it's safe to say this movie, as Jay was talking about a little bit ago, it really put the comic book movie as we know it today on the map and was the main catalyst in creating this superhero movie, that, that uh, world that we live in now. Yes. I really didn't, I really don't have anything extra to add because it's already been said about the movie. But just after watching that abomination that is Batman Forever, it really, again, like Abe was saying, it makes you angry. Tim Burton and Michael Keaton couldn't have given us at least one more uh, Batman movie in this world. I'll go as far to say I think it's the second best Batman movie of all time. I think The Dark Knight is probably the best. But in my opinion, as time has moved on, Batman 89 is closing that gap a little bit. Every time I go back and watch it, I like it just a little bit more. The, the We didn't talk much about the car, but I think they got the look of the car right. Yes. I love the all-black uh, suit with just a little yellow logo. It just looks so great. The movie's dark. It's yeah. extremely well cast. Again, Jack Nicholson, I even talked about it on last episode where I was talking about his performance as Jack Torrance. Uh, is probably my favorite Nicholson role, but this is going to be my second favorite Nicholson role as, oh, yeah. as the Joker. So I saw the movie for the first time at the Franklin Drive-In in the summer of 1989, and Batman instantly became my favorite superhero. He's always been my favorite superhero. Well, I think the only other one I really even care about is Spider-Man. I'm not a big superhero guy, yeah. but it, I love this movie. Holds up great. And these are our number one picks. These are what we're saying is the best summer blockbuster from 85 to 89. Mark, I think we already know what your number one is, but go ahead, hit us with it. 
Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? <laughs> there I we go. Out of all my prey. I just like the sound of it. Guys, I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I see a clear winner here. And, you know, I think it's well earned. I mean, Tim Burton, you know, easily one of the one of the best directors of that uh, era. Maybe, you know, he's in the conversation for even at the goat, you know, quite possibly. Um, I just love this movie. I, I have loved it for 30 plus years. Um, there's a lot of interesting backstory be- behind this. The, one of the most interesting things that, that I find about it is, um, the, there's an irony in the development, right? So originally the original script for this movie was written by, um, by Tom Mankiewicz who wrote my beloved Superman two, right? So he writes the original script. He wanted Wes Craven to be the director. Warner Brothers vetoed him and hired Tim Burton because they want they they had a they had a an idea of how Wes Craven was going to make the film and they were going for a more family friendly more campy version of the movie so they hire the guy who directed Pee-wee's Big Adventure thinking it's going to be sort of like that Tim Burton comes on the scene he decides that Tom Mankiewicz's script is too campy and too childish throws it out, hires a, a, a completely different writer, uh, I think Sam Hamm, to rewrite the script and make it darker. He then uh, goes and casts your most unlikely lead actor in, um, in Michael Keaton after seeing his performance in Clean and Sober and decides that this guy has just the right amount of edge to play Bruce Wayne. Just the just the the shift in how that movie was developed. You have like Wes Craven, who uh, who uh, directed Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. and he loses the gig to the guy that they think is going to make the most family friendly movie. And that guy winds up making a movie that would have been ten times darker, <laughs> darker than than Craven's. Um, another awesome thing that I love about this movie is the soundtrack. I mean. I'm a huge Prince fan. And one thing that I think that was sort of a brilliant accidental happenstance is that Jack Nicholson uh, agreeing to this movie had just a few provisos, right? He had that he wanted to uh, have a limited amount of, uh, of hours on the set. He wanted to be off for Lakers games. Uh, and the third thing is that he wanted Prince to do the soundtrack. Warner Brothers agreed to all three terms. And thank God they did because Prince did an amazing job with that, with that, uh, with that soundtrack. I just think it's an amazing like confluence of, of, of story, of action and music all together. It is probably the best movie of its time, of uh, the best superhero movie of its time and i'm not budging from that i don't know what you guys got all the panel agrees it's a it's a great film and uh i had a feeling you were going to be picking that movie and uh again obviously it being my number two i love it gabe what's your number one film i'm gonna go with a quote again since Wes inspired me everyone knows you can't generate 1.2 gigawatts when I think Blockbuster, I, I don't know. Spielberg just does it again. When I think Blockbuster, I think Jurassic Park. When I think Blockbuster, I think this this movie. It just has it all. It has 
stolen plutonium. It has the flux capacitor was invented. It's got Michael J. Fox just being awesome. It's got um, Christopher Lloyd just being amazing. I will say this. You guys want to feel old? He traveled to the future, and the year he traveled to was 11 years ago when he traveled to the future. Yikes. Does anybody else feel old right now? Not just that, but the, the Cubs, if the Cubs won the series, World Series one year earlier, yeah. I know. Right. Yeah, it, yeah, that's right. That's right. I remember that. That's such heartbreaking. I, I was rooting for that, too. When the Doc dies, gets shot in the beginning every time I cry because he just spent all this money on this um, time machine and he never got to use it. I was like, no, he never got to use his time machine. But I will say I love a movie. That's all about fixing a problem. Marty, Biff had just run into Marty's dad's car and he wasn't going to get to take out his girl. But the whole movie accidentally fixes it through all this crazy stuff, Michael J. Fox, and then magically he's got a truck and he's able to take his girl out there at the end. The movie's absolutely preposterous because the odds that they know the exact second that it gets hit with lightning, that they know the odds that lightning is exactly 1.21 gigawatts. They don't have exact seconds for when the car should take off. Everything's a little bit behind, but it doesn't matter that it's preposterous. You love the, you know, the dance. You love everything to do with this movie. And if I'll say something that I'll close it with this, it's right now, you can turn on your Netflix and it's trending in the top 10 on Netflix 36 years after the movie came out because they re-released it on Netflix. Great choice, Gabe. And you're with a lot of uh, our listeners, as we'll get to in just a second. Tom Sake, let's move on. St. Jay, what's your number one? Honestly, God, uh, Gabe, first and foremost, that was a great pick, but I didn't put it on my list because I that movie doesn't speak to me like it speaks to everybody else. But I do agree with you. One thing, though, Steven Spielberg. That being said, my number one pick is Anna Jones and The Last Crusade. I almost put Batman at number one. It was between Batman and Last Crusade. I had to go with Last Crusade. It's just, we already talked about it, but it's still, you can still make the argument, Raiders or Last Crusade. But if we're talking late 80s, dude, it's Last Crusade. And if, and if one of these Indiana Jones movies isn't the number one of the decade, I, I'm going to riot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, T-Man, what's your number one? Well, guys, for me, there's really only one pick here. This is uh, one of the greats blockbusters of all time. Gabe did a great job introducing or talking about it. It's Back to the Future for me. I think it's one of the great films of all time. It's really a perfect, perfectly constructed blockbuster. You know, blockbuster blockbusters have a bad name in a lot of ways for good reason. We we've had a lot of junk over the past 30, 40 years since the introduction of them. But when they're made well, they span demographics, they span ages, they span worlds. Like everybody can agree what the greats are because they just unite us all. And I think that's what Back to the Future does. As Gabe said, it's trending now on Netflix top ten, you know, thirty years later. It, it's just such a great, fun film. It's you know, it's got Michael J. Fox at his peak. One really cool thing is that he was actually not the first actor chosen for the role. Um, Eric Stoltz actually was chosen as Marty McFly. They shot scenes with him, and they just thought it wasn't working. Like they just saw the dailies, and they just realized that they needed to go back to to Michael J. Fox, who was the original for, first choice for for it but he was filming family ties. Well, they went back to him and said, 
we need you. We we got to have you. You're the key to the movie. And he basically shot the movie at night. He said he barely even slept for like six months because he was filming wow. Family Ties during the day. Then he would go immediately to the uh, set of Back to the Future and film that movie, his scenes at night. Um, and I guess Eric. what? Yeah, that, that, yeah. And Eric, you can actually find some of those scenes on YouTube. They said that he just wasn't doing the comedy aspect right. And you can kind of see that Eric Stoltz kind of trended towards more darker indie films right. where Marty, you need a natural comedian. And that's what Michael yeah. J. Fox is. Of course, it's got great direction by Robert Zemeckis, who's one of the great, you know, technical directors, I think, uh, one of Spielberg's uh, protégés, and you got Spielberg producing it. And just the plot into itself is so unique, so original, so funny. I mean, and think about this. They snuck in a subplot where the mom was trying to sleep with the son. And, and it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a subtle subplot. Family. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not subtle. It's right there out in the open at the end. I mean, and even in the beginning where she's like looking at his underwear, she's like, uh, hi, Calvin. Like, I didn't, I haven't met anybody that writes uh, their name on their underwear. I mean, that's just genius. And it, so it holds up really well because adults can get that humor. Kids can like it. It's just a really smart film in that way. It's so good. Me and my wife went and saw it in the drive through a year ago. God, the drive-through, the drive-in. Sorry, drive-in. The but they still played at the drive-in. It is like everywhere. It's thirty-six years ago. Yeah, it holds up super well. I think it's definitely going to be in the running for for winner. I don't know if it will win. I think it's definitely a possibility, though. I'm rooting for it. That was T Men's number one, and we'll do my number one real quick, and uh, we'll get to some of our listeners, our listener feedback. And T-Man, I went from 90 to 94. I picked Terminator 2. 95 to 99, I went with 7. 80 to 84, I went with The Shining. What do you think that I, my number one is? I don't know. I, oh, you I'm throw scared. me curveballs every time. It's probably going to be like freaking Amadeus. <laughs> or Platoon. <laughs> they mostly come out at night. Mostly. Ah, uh, Aliens. Well, that's a good pick. Yeah, my number one film is Aliens, James Cameron's action masterpiece. Well, he has several ac- action masterpieces. And I don't want to go into depth in, in deep with this film because Mr. Kevin Kangas, he's going to be joining us again on an episode all dedicated to Aliens in the near future. I think Terminator 2 is the greatest sequel of all time. And then I've got like Aliens, Godfather 2, and The Dark Knight all kind of tied as like the second best sequel of all time uh just ask me on a particular day and i may have a different answer but those are kind of like the best sequels i've ever ever i love how cameron took the horror sci-fi world of alien he pulled a unique and original story out of that world and then made a completely different film that was nearly as good i'm i'm a bigger alien fan than aliens but just barely And, you know, there's a lot of talk in today's culture about female heroes and nearly every movie or every show now has like the female lead, the female hero, the the strong female. And I think they could everybody can think Sigourney's turn is Ellen Ripley in this film for that. She was a believable, a badass. And as the audience, when you're watching it, you feel like she's really the only one that can save the day. I mean, we've got the military and we've got androids and that are trying to handle the Xenomorph, but you really feel that only Ellen Ripley 
can take care of them. I recommend our audience check out the James Cameron director's cut of this film. I always like the director's cut more than the theatrical, and it can be found on many versions of the Blu-ray. I think the scenes that they cut out, I wish they hadn't. But they cut out a bunch of like the, the gun turret subplot and some different things like that that I think are really good in the film. Okay, well, that's our number one picks. Um, everybody's got their top five list in. I have everything calculated up. I see... What's going to happen, but I'm going to do a little cliffhanger because we're going to go through real quick. And no matter how bad you want to, just say the movie. So everybody go through real quick and give their honorable mentions. And let's go backwards. So I'll start this. My honorable mentions, I had Back to the Future at number six. I had The Fly at number seven. I freaking love The Fly, and it actually qualified under our criteria. I actually had it at number five for a little while. And then predator at number eight so t-man what's your honorable mentions yeah honorable mentions pretty much all the movies we've already talked about uh indiana jones the last crusade at six predator at seven batman at eight cool saint jay honorable mentions die hard robocop back to the future nice all right gabe like i said dead poet society was my number six it would have been in my top five then right after that, um, I had Die Hard, and right after that, I had Goonies. Okay, and finally, Mark, honorable mentions. What just missed your list? Uh, number six, Full Metal Jacket. Oh, uh, yeah. Seven, Die Hard, and eight, The Fly. Ah, there we go. All right, we got someone <laughs> yeah, else nice. for The Fly. Yeah, I love The Fly. Okay, we did a Twitter poll, and we got about 50 votes, about the same as we did the last time. The choices, I came down to Batman, Back to the Future, Aliens, and Die Hard, which according to the votes, they were pretty much, I did pretty well picking those four. No one listed any movies different in the comments, and they just voted for these choices. Die Hard only got 15% of the vote. We had a tie at two and three between Aliens and Batman, and the overwhelming favorite who won the poll was Back to the Future at 47% of the vote. Wow. This next section, we're going to move into our listener feedback. If you guys have anything that you want to add or say, along with the listeners, just kind of butt in and and and, and say your piece. But um, I recently had lunch with uh, Justin Hester, one of Gabe and I's good friends. And after the lunch, he said, you guys have a podcast, right? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll send you the link. And he started listening to the show, and we're really excited about that. And he went ahead and sent us his 85 to 89 list. And I'll read all of his. Number five, he put Crocodile Dundee 2, which I, I understand is a favorite of Seth George, one of our other listeners as well. Yeah, Batman at four, Ferris Bueller at three, Die Hard at two, and Back to the Future at one. Matt Hosley, the host of the excellent Lost Art of Podcast, also Back to the Future at number one. Charlene Lance, she's a lady I work with, think a lot of her. I really appreciated her submitting her first feedback of the show, and her number one was Top Gun. Oh. Nick from Film Shake, who was on our Roadhouse episode, he dropped us his list in a barrage of tweets because he forgot to include Aliens. But don't worry, Nick, we got you covered. I got Aliens on your list. But his number one movie was Die Hard. He also sent us a separate list, and I thought this was interesting. He tried to remember back to his time, and he sent us a ranking of the movies in his mind, of how big that they felt to him as a kid. I thought that was kind of a unique way to look at it. And so he had Who Framed Roger Rabbit, 
Back to the Future 2. He said he actually prefers it over the original. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Back to the Future. And then Batman. And he said Batman, when it came out, was the biggest deal any movie that he had ever encountered. Our old pal Matt Cecil went with Top Gun as his number one. And he said, I'm basing it on the amount of times that I've seen it standard. Pearl Morgan, she gave us about 20 movies and went by year. She was too excited to narrow them down to just five. Pearl, we hear you. It was really tough. Uh, A couple of movies that she listed, she went with Fright Night, which I love Fright Night. Unfortunately, it didn't make enough money at the box office for me to include it in my list. But then she had classics like Aliens and Batman, etc. Julie Sears, number one, was Back to the Future. She said that though she shared with us that she saw Lost Boys in theaters when it came out, and she recently saw the 35th anniversary of Stand By Me, which was on a lot of listeners' lists at the theaters just last month. So I I thought that was pretty cool. She saw Lost Boys in 87 when it came out and uh, and Stand By Me. Craig Smith went with Back to the Future Part 2 as his number one. And Craig, hoverboards don't work on water. Did you see that hoverboard in, in Times Square the other day? I didn't. Did There's a look dude. Like look up the video. It's all over the internet. It's a dude going through Times Square riding like 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 this hover thing. Like and everyone's like, oh my god, it's the Green Goblin. So I'm just saying, again, <laughs> Back to the Future predicted hoverboards is just they got the the wrong year. Right. So hoverboards are well on its way. Seth George he included some comments and we love when listeners do this. I like to hear you know people's rationale reasoning. So I'll read his list because of that. Goonies, he said, nothing transports me back to my childhood like Goonies. Whenever I hear that Cindy Lauper song, it makes me want to jump on a bike and ride. Every time I see or even hear Sean Astin, I think, hey, Mikey, got to go to the bathroom. And Goonies never say die. I'm serious. Nothing makes me feel like a kid again more than Goonies. Number four was Bull Durham. This is the best baseball movie ever made. I routinely quote Crash Davis, whether it be I believe in softcore pornography, opening your present, your your presents Christmas morning rather than Christmas Eve, or the rose goes in front of the big guy. Number three was Ferris Bueller. I love everything about the movie, the plot, the city, the music, the car. I don't care if it makes no sense and that Ferris has $8,000 synthesizer, but is complaining he doesn't have a car, which in the 80s, could cost way less. Say Anything with his number two. He said Cameron Crowe gets him. I'm the audience he makes movies for. You know, the movie takes a character in Lloyd, who I understand and appreciate his awkwardness, and turns him into a hero. Number one, Back to the Future. And clearly, he said, clearly I wasn't thinking when I included this in the 80 and 84 list because I know it was 1985. No movie encapsulates the 80s more than Back to the Future. Dr. Shock, Dave Becker, again, shot us his list and just included a couple of comments. Always love hearing from Dave, the encyclopedia of movie knowledge. He said, I'm again limiting to movies I saw on the big screen. So, again, he saw all of these movies when they originally came out. Five was Back to the Future. It's strange. This is so low on my list because it's such a great movie, but I just couldn't rank it above any of the other four theatrical experiences. Saw it with my family and loved it. The crowd that night was electric. Number four, Team Animal Like This, The Untouchables. My brother and I went to the midnight screening of this one, and I was so energized by that movie that I couldn't get to sleep that night. Number three, Mark. 
St. J, Predator. My friends and I saw this one during senior week on the Wildwood, New Jersey boardwalk. Loved every minute of it from this point on. My friend John and I never miss a Schwarzenegger movie on the big screen. He also went with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He had it at number two. He said it was the last day of our junior year of high school, and a bunch of us went to the theater that night to see this. We filled the first two rows right up front under the screen and had a blast. And his number one, Die Hard. I was working at McDonald's the summer of 88, and a co-worker, also named Dave, suggested we see this one. I was damn glad he did. It blew me away. And his honorable mention was Stand By Me. He just said, great job on the early 80s, guys, and can't wait to hear this one. Writer and director Kevin Kangas sent us his top 15 movies from this era. He left no man behind, and ultimately he went with Aliens and number one, and he said, anyone that doesn't have this in their list should be disqualified. I have spoken. He also went on <laughs> to say that T-Man is on his list, and watch your back, whatever that means, T-Man, doesn't sound oh, good. Oh, wow. Well, here's the thing. Well, that sounds ominous. Here's the thing. Uh, I didn't have aliens on my list. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> that's the reason why I'm on Kevin's list. Oh, man, that's hilarious. Oh, that's so funny. I hope Kevin's listening. <laughs> Driver, our resident Mortal Kombat expert and future Tremors episode guest, said Goonies is his number one. Jordan, who's the first time we've heard from him, he's the other half of the film shake of Film Shake, the 90 Movies podcast, which, again, is a great show. I think everyone would like it. Now, audience, if you go listen to their show, and it's it's not permission to just forget about real talk and continue to listen to it, just go over there, hear a few episodes, and make sure you come back to us. But anyway, Jordan went with Stand By Me as his number one, which none of us said tonight, but, again, was very popular on the lists. Nathan Bartlebaugh who is in sync with Kevin Kangas and myself, went with Aliens as his top choice. He included The Fly, like me and Mark did, on his honorable mention list, and that movie just didn't get enough love tonight. Matthew West, who we shouted out on last episode and joined our Facebook group, what a pleasant surprise to see his name pop up. He went with Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. Matthew had The Shining on his list, like me, the first time and is now promoting last crusade like me. So he's a welcome addition to the real talk family. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> Matt Mulholland Brit. I, I actually should call him Matt Mulholland drive Brit. Sorry. He listed ET as his number one, which actually counted for last episode, which defaults to his number two pick as his number one, which is Batman 1989. Woo. Right on. Our buddy, Brian Scott, Horror movie fanboy on Twitter listed Back to the Future of his number one. And in his honorable mentions, he listed both Commando and Return of the Living Dead, which oh, we haven't man. talked really Ooh. much about Ooh. those. Just a couple more here. Justin Wallace at Jedi Knight 417 dropped his top five list. And The Goonies was his number one. And he also listed Predator in his honorable mentions. We have several new Facebook um, group members, and we're so happy to have them. And a couple of them wanted to get in on the summer blockbuster top five, and both individuals gave us their top five list from each half decade. Uh, Joseph Minto. Yeah, from Nerd his- Cage moderator. Oh, yeah. There you yeah, go. I, I sent him. I brought him in, dude. I brought him in. Those, no, those I appreciate speak it. up, I brought him in. Yeah, he he went ahead and gave us both lists, and his number one from 80 to 84 was 
Raiders. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was his number two. His number one was Empire Strikes Back. Yes. Uh, all right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Shame on you, Joe. Oh, <laughs> I'll see you Thursday, Joe. <laughs> I wonder how many Joe, accidental... you Joe in and he does that to us. I wonder how many accidental Raiders number ones are going to happen, Wes. Right. No, 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 no. There's no no cheating. No cheating. I, I get. It's if good. I was, I'm, happy, I'm happy. Joe chimed in. He's a fantastic friend, great moderator, fantastic, but even better friend. Yeah, welcome back, Joe. If I was cheating, I would have, I would have put uh, Terminator Two over Jurassic Park. Trust me. And then his number one from '85 to '89 was Back to the Future. And then Laura Fitkin, Review Roulette Podcast, friend of friend yeah. of the Cage. She also just joined our group. We really appreciate her being here. Her 80 to 84 list she had, number one, was Flash Gordon. No surprise. And T-Man, yeah. she also had Wrath of Khan on her list. Yep. And then <laughs> 85 to 89, she had her number one was Big Trouble in Little China. And she also had They Live on their list. Oh, and I she sounds like a John you. Carpenter woman, which is a woman after my own heart. And, Laura, I want to encourage you to listen to our Sandy King Carpenter interview episode where we talk about They Live, and even we talk to the man himself, John Carpenter. He stopped by at the end to answer a couple of questions. And finally, I want to shout out Nathan Dalrymple, a friend of T-Man and I from high school. I ran into him at work recently, and he said, hey, man, I just started listening to your show, and I want to thank him for that. He did not submit a list, but I did want to shout him out for that. So, guys, that concludes our audience feedback section. So the last thing we have to do tonight is what everybody has waited for. It's time to crown the king of the summer blockbuster. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start at 10. I'm going to work our way down. And once we get to number one, you're going to know what our next episode is going to be. Everybody ready? I'm actually nervous. I'm ready. My body's ready. Do it. Ready. Team yeah. in, you ready to go? I'm really nervous yeah, about this. I'm ready, but I do, I have to put a qualifier in here, and this is what I talk, I haven't mentioned it, but uh, I do have the authority to do a recount if, if need be. <laughs> First, <laughs> you got to do the Terminator 2 recount. Now, there is no Terminator 2 recount, because I've done a recount on that in Jurassic Park 1, so I already did <laughs> yes. that. Yeah, let, <laughs> let's hear Empire, Empire Strikes Back get screwed. All right, here we go. Number 11, I'm sorry, number 10 is Top Gun. Okay. Good job. I dig it. I dig it. Oh, one thing I wanted to say before I finish this list, I know everybody's like, shut up and just read the list. (laughs) We got more submissions for our 85 to 89 than we did, so it, it, it did sway things a little bit. There are some 80 to 84 in here, but um, we got quite a few more submissions, which obviously... One thing that helped balance it out a little bit is there was a lot more movies that were mentioned from 85 to 89. So I think it did even things out a little bit, but I did want to throw that out there to everybody. Anyway, Top Gun was number 10. Number nine was Goonies. Wow. Number eight was E.T. Number seven was Ghostbusters, which I was actually Uh surprised it fell to seven after tonight. Yeah. Wow. Number six was Die Hard. Good job, Die Hard. All right. Number five was Aliens. Yeah. Oh, good showing. 
That's about to my Top number five. five. <laughs> I matched. I mean, let's be honest, Wes. We don't really need a B movie like Aliens to get any higher than five. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> wow. Number four was Batman. Oh, number four. I'm sorry, Still Mark. Still top five. That's good. All right, so now we're at the top three, guys. Man, I'm nervous. Oh God! If it, the if they're all three Star Wars movies, I'm out. Oh no. Number three, Empire Strikes Back. Hi. Oh, all right. Thank <laughs> the Lord. <laughs> one out of the way. Yeah, one out of the way, Jay. Right, but still, good movie. And Gabe, don't worry. I I counted twice because there was one single point difference between Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. One finished wow. number what? two. That's recount what? territory. Yep. Raiders so number two. I think uh, everybody knows what's number one. So our next episode is going to be a full episode dedicated to the overwhelming favorite. It won by 24 points. Back wow. to the future. All oh, right. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad Raiders beat Empire. Thank God, because I was fearing that. But ah. man, do you realize? No, listen. Just, just a quick argument. No Raiders. No Back to the Future. Just saying. Just saying. Well, here's That's another. All right. Thing. It's. I get it. A lot of people love. I get it. I mean, I would have been more pissed if it was Empire. But man, I really thought for sure Raiders was running away with it. Well, I did too. And at, before this episode, obviously, Raiders was it was the number one movie. So I was mm-hmm. like, okay, is Back to the Future going to upset it? And as the list started coming in, I was like, man, we haven't even started our episode yet, and it's almost overtaking it. And so another thing, too, to show you how much of a landslide victory this was for Back to the Future, it was included on six more lists than, than wow. any other movie. Yeah. So Raiders was included in the second most list, and then Empire and Batman were included in the third most. Empire just had three more points than Batman. Good job, did. Tommy. Yeah, great job, guys. I think it's okay. That's all right. Well I, I, I can live with it. I can live with it. Yeah. I, if it was I, for if me, Empire, I would like. For me, it always had to be Raiders or Back to the Future. Yeah. Me personally, for the top two, and I'm glad one of those two won. So I'm I'm very happy. Great job, everybody. Glad yeah. everybody voted. Yeah, um, great, great listeners, man. Great input from everybody. Definitely. Yeah, it wasn't on my list, but I definitely respect that pick. Yeah. It is a beloved movie by everyone, including me, and it's just, yeah. Congratulations to everybody who picked that one as number one. And I think I think it's going to make a fun episode. I literally just watched Back to the Future a couple of days ago, and I'll, I'll watch it again for our, for our episode. But I think we'll have a lot of fun uh, doing that movie. Okay. Let's wrap it up. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on our show tonight. It was a blast. Absolutely. This episode went a little bit longer than what we normally do, but that's okay. We had a lot of extras to do and wanted to make sure that we shouted out our listeners and their picks. But one more time, tell the audience where they can catch episodes of Nerd Cage Live. Hit it, Jay. Nerd Cage Live is readily available on YouTube.com slash Nerd Cage Live. Please sub us up. We go live every Thursday, and of course... Now that we cover movies, we talk comics, we talk video games, we talk anything pop culture, mainly movies, but anything pop culture, any pop culture relevance, that's what Nerd Cage Live is just, it's all about. It's not just a reaction show, it's a debate show and a live discussion that makes people like you and everybody else here and all the listeners, what makes us tick and what 
gets us going. That's what Nerd Cage Live is all about. We always have fantastic guests on, including these fine gentlemen here at Real Talk. Mark does terrific work. I mean, he does the majority of the editing on the videos, and he runs all the podcasts. So, yes, to all you audio junkies out there, Nerd Cage Live is readily available on Podbean, Spotify, where um Apple Music, wherever you prefer to listen to your podcast, Nerd Cage Live is available there. That's all I got. Oh, yeah, we're also on Twitter and uh, in Facebook. So if you want to give us a follow, please do. And, you know, like I said, pl- please subscribe. Our YouTube's really our main platform. Please sub us up. Uh, we, will be doing a fi- we will be doing a $50 uh, Amazon card giveaway when we hit 500 subscribers by yours truly, Jay. And I have other giveaways planned as well. And yeah, thanks for letting us be on the show. This felt so natural and so right. I did not feel weird at all. I didn't feel out of place. This was so fitting. Thank you so much for inviting us on. This was an absolute blast. I hope we did good enough to come back. Absolutely. We will for sure have you guys back on in the future. And again, we are fans of your show. We're fans of what you're doing. And we hope we can send a few listeners, a few uh, watchers, uh, viewers, I think is the word I'm looking for. But, but, your but way. Watch, listen, listeners, Watchers. when you come over there, you can sneak back through the. Just go for a couple episodes, sneak back through the cage, and come back. Seriously, guys, though, the most fun I've ever had on a show, and that's Definitely. saying a lot because we had a lot of fun. Compete, me and T Man and and Wes all competing. And so, it was it was an absolute blast to 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 do this uh, list with you guys. I agonized over it for like I guess like a couple of weeks, but it was the most fun to kind of just dig into these movies and just talk about what's absolutely like the best things about those things. And we can't think of like a better crew of people to do that with. So thank you so much for uh, including us in this. It really means a lot to us. Thanks so much, guys, for jumping on. As we continue these on, you know, we'll get into the 1950s, the 40s blockbusters, the summer blockbusters. <laughs> we'll talk about those films. So we'll we'll hopefully do this again. Absolutely. <laughs> but ne- next summer we will. We're going to do the 2000s next summer. All right, audience. We hope you enjoyed this episode. A couple things we're going to ask you to do to support our efforts here at Real Talk a Movie Podcast. A big thing you can do, subscribe to our show. If you've been a listener and you haven't subscribed yet, please do that. And then if you don't mind, go in, leave us a rating and review. If you don't want to write a review, just take your thumb, slide it over on those star ratings, push down, bam. You've given us a a rating, and that just helps grow our show. We'd love to hear from you. Where we got all of our listener feedback is from Twitter and Facebook. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at real underscore cast. That's R-E-E-L. We're on Facebook, Real Talk A Movie Podcast page. This is where we're really putting our efforts and our fan interaction into our Facebook group. We've had several people that have left Twitter and come over to Facebook and joined us over there. We implore you to do the same thing. You can also hang out with Mark and Jay. They interact with us frequently in the Facebook group as well. We've got an Instagram page, official Real Talk podcast, and it's ran by friend of the show, Ren Burnett. Finally, we want to thank uh, artist Matt Holland for designing our podcast logo. And for us, that's a wrap.